You ready? Yes. Let us begin. This briefing is from file A56-7W. Classified top secret subject is... Ages Comics. Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Hello. <laughs> I'm talking to you generally, though. And welcome to another fantastic episode of Hey Kids Comics. We don't even know how good it is going to be yet. We're I'm just counting my chickens. Yeah. Um, you know, mm. I'm so confident that, gonna that this one's going to be a good one. Yeah. Because I'm very excited for this, aren't I? Oh, we know. <laughs> well, we don't. I don't the, the, the lovely listeners don't know how excited I've been for this. Don't know, but I do. Yes, you do. And you're just going to tear it to bits, aren't you? I have this this strange feeling in my water. In that, your water? Yeah, that you're perhaps not going to be as infused mm. about these four issues as I am. I don't know what it is. It's just a strange sense of deja vu. Okay. I don't know why it's deja vu. No. That would be very strange, wouldn't it? Sure. It's like I can, I can feel it. I can see it. It's like a sixth sense. Right. Although seeing it would be one of the five. A sixth sense that... No. Them, I know what Michael's going to think of a Marvel Wolfman story. I, 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 I don't wish to offer any prejudiced comments your way before we begin. Uh, as usual, uh, you know the drill by now. Old episodes, two true freaks, blah blah blah. Go download them. Send the figures to Mars. That's what we'd like. Okay. Two true freaks figures up through the roof, all because of our little show. We'd love that to happen. Yes, we would. Uh, and that's pretty much it for this week. We didn't see a film. Oh, I saw Ted yesterday. You, you did it. It was very good. Okay. I liked it much. Okay. I can't think of anything comic-related I've done this week. I seem to have spent the week doing notes for shows. Yeah. <laughs> All this to the left and the right of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, quick plug. Um, Fantastic Cast carries on. We recorded a new one of them today. Yeah. I think that's going up next Saturday, but I don't know. So that'll be last Saturday. Yeah. As you listen to this, yep. yeah, I've recorded an extra length back to the bins with Mr. Michael Bailey. Hi, Mike. All about the Incredible Hulk TV show. Okay. Uh, he's in the process of editing that. I don't know when that's going live. Keep your eye on the Two True Freaks feed, and you will will see that. And tomorrow, I am recording a From Crisis to Crisis with okay. Michael and Jeffrey Taylor. That should be fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm very busy, considering this is my week off. Uh, but before we begin with today's exciting comic book coverage. Emails! How exciting is that? Very exciting. You've, I can tell you're excited. I'm enthusiastic. Why are you reading a comic that we're not covering until next week? I'm just looking through it. Oh, right, okay. Well, why I read the emails? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. The first email tonight is called The Dark Knight Rises. Does it? Which sounds like a porn film to me. He did. Yes, it's from the aforementioned Stephen Lacey. Surely, Hi, surely Stephen. Would be the Dark Knight descends. The Dark Knight goes down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking now. The Dark Knight Rises makes no sense in that film. If anything, it's either 
crippled Bruce Wayne rises or the Dark Knight Falls. Well, it's funny you should say that. Yes. For this email addresses those very points. Okay. It's all cyclical. Yes. It all works very well, doesn't it? It does. Yes, indeed. Hello, Stephen. We did it again. Yes. I introduced the email, said what the subject heading was, and you interrupted me with your new Justin Bieber-esque haircut. Thanks. (laughs) I prefer Ian Curtis. Ian Curtis will do. Got told it was a Noel Gallagher. It's not a Noel Gallagher. Okay. It's really not a Noel Gallagher. Okay. It's very Starbuck. Dirt Benedict Starbuck. Oh, okay. Not Katie Sackhoff Starbuck. (laughs) Oh, dear me. Stephen's email begins, Hey, hey kids, comics, comics, kids. Hey, Steve, Hen, Lace, Lacey, Stephen, Lace. Hey? Yeah. Does that work? Fine. Possibly. Hey, C, Steve, Lay, Fen. <laughs> Having listened to the first 20 minutes or so of your latest episode, I have to ask one question. Did you both fall asleep in the middle of the Dark Knight Rises? Yes, like everyone else in that cinema. I was willing to, to concede that it is possible we fell asleep yeah. during the middle of the Dark Knight Rises oh, and then woke up and went, God, is this still on? You woke up to the Hans Zimmer music. Fum, fum, He sat down and everyone had fallen asleep. He's like, right, Hans, come on, we need to keep everyone awake. Fum, fum, Is that going to be the score to the new Superman movie, you think? Right, is he doing that? Anyway, Stephen's email continues. Bruce Wayne's bankruptcy is a key step in the plans of Bane and the other woman whose name I've forgotten. It forces Bruce to relinquish control of Wayne Enterprises and to instill the other woman as the new head of the company in conjunction with the hostile takeover that's happening at the same time. It forces Bruce to persuade the other woman to go ahead with the reactor thingy so he's carefully kept hidden for several years. Without his personal bankruptcy, the other woman's hand would have been shown long before it was, as she would have had to have made a blatant personal move to get things in place for the No Man Land sequence in the film. You may have noticed that this email has been censored due to the internet treaty on spoilers. Yes. It is also a key thematic plot point. You can look at what happens in the No Man's Land situation where the poor and dispossessed turf the rich out of their homes as one of the more blatant moments where the themes of the economic troubles and the other 99% come through. But the fact that Bruce Wayne suffers and loses the things he's been fighting for throughout all of the films, Wayne Enterprises and his father's legacy in the Wayne Foundation, ties in neatly with one of the themes of the film. Finally, this all comes to a head in the final sequence of the film where, after his legal death, everything that belonged to Bruce is either taken control of to cover his debts or donated in lieu of his debts. The Dark Knight rises, but the Wayne Empire falls. I'm not entirely sure I buy that 99% thing. I've read a lot about that since we saw the film, that the the playing with the whole political 99% situation and the Occupy Wall Street thing. I I don't buy that. Covering No Man's Land. Well, that as well. But I don't buy that because to me, although Bruce Wayne represents the privileged 1%, the Batman is the 99%. Batman is the one who put a mask on and said, the system isn't working. Yeah. So to me, he represents the 99%. Okay. And so him coming back and taking back Gotham could be seen as some kind of political and social commentary. Yeah. I'll be honest, when we first watched it, I didn't go into it looking for political commentary. You went to watch a Batman film. I went to watch a decent Batman film. Well, we went to watch a Nolan film. It might not have been a Batman film. Well, yes, there is that. But I, I seem to have come away enjoying it a lot more than you did. But I am more... I, with the Christopher Nolan films, I am more like, this is Nolan's Batman, just like the Adam West is Adam West Batman. Yeah. And I watched an episode of Adam West Batman this week. 
because I'm off. I'm as, an, as an Adam West Batman, it's good. And um, as an Adam West Batman TV show, it's yeah. perfectly serviceable. It was actually quite funny in as places. As a Batman TV show, it's... But as a Batman... My Batman, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. And it's the same with the Christopher Nolan film. This is Nolan's take on Batman. I can watch it. I can enjoy it for what it is. It's not our Batman. But it's not my Batman. It's not anyone's Batman but Nolan's. No, well, see, there is, there's a metric ton of people for whom this is the Godfather trilogy. This is the Star Wars trilogy. This is the Holy Trilogy. It's Back to the Future. It's Lord of the Rings. People haven't read any Batman comics. Well, so anyway, I take your point politically, but you know, uh, some days you just can't get rid of a financial bomb. <laughs> Very good, Sudi did that. Very clever. Yours, fantastic, Astley, Steve Layson. I'll be buggered if I can remember insert name of woman here, pseudonym in the film, and calling her Marion Cotillard. I look forward to pronunciation of that surname. Just seems wrong. So spoilers for the last email. Which you just read, yeah, but we did warn people that we were talking about The Dark Knight Rises in the subject heading. So. And as it's been a month since the film came out, I'm not sure I give a damn about spoilers. Well, I do. Because yeah. it bugs the crap out of me that they have the end of Planet of the Apes on the goddamn DVD cover! That irritates me no end, doesn't it? Okay. Well, Can you imagine? Not a twist ending anymore it's a nightmare I would argue you, there is still a possibility that now 40 odd years later there is somebody could come to that movie and know nothing about it yeah I would yeah. argue that they may never have seen that episode of The Simpsons yeah and they could come to Planet of the Apes completely unspoiled apart from the fact they would open the DVD it's and they're on the cover oh there's the Statue of Liberty it's like having on the cover of a certain film he's a man it's like okay. saying, we're not going to spoil Dark Knight Rises, but blast it, I was really surprised when Bruce Wayne turned out to be a ghost. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. It's, no, I'm, I'm well, not down with I asked you about that when me and Adam first watched Planet of the Apes. Dad, why is he so overreacting at the end? We all know that the Statue of Liberty was there. <sighs> but don't they ruin the second one in the trailer? Yeah, pretty much, but they used to ruin movies in the trailers all the time, back in the 70s. All right, then. I can't remember which film, I think it was Superman 3. You watch the trailer for Superman 3, it lays out the entire film for you. All right. And you're like, what? Uh, PPS Thanos. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Avengers. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. We liked that. Always nice to get an email from our Fantastic Cast buddy. Go and listen to Fantastic Cast. Apparently it's very good. Is it? Apparently. I wouldn't know. No, I wouldn't. Mm. I'm in it. <laughs> so, it's got that going for it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, our next email is called Now You're Just Trying to Give Me an Aneurysm. Guess who this is from? Can we slide a tangent in there somewhere? Well, I'm sure we can slide a tangent in here, yes. All right. Hello, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. Howdy. <laughs> Hello, Scott. I do like his email address. Mine heron? Did I pronounce that right? My heron. He's not letting this Nazi thing go, is he? No. My heron. It flew away into the uh, canal. <laughs> into the sun. It's attacking a swan. Get oh, it, my God. heron. Scott's email continues. Or starts, I suppose. Yes. Would be the more appropriate thing to say. So let me get this straight. People are asking you, practically begging you, to cover a particular topic, which you actually want to cover, and you're hesitating because it maybe doesn't fit with the overall comics theme of the show? Who cares? Well, I kind of don't we think do. that Spartacus... Doing a commentary for Spartacus. I presume that's what he's referring to. I don't really think a commentary for Spartacus... I, I presume Gabriel was, was joking. Yeah. I didn't take It'd that be, entirely oh, seriously. Oh, oh, I mean, it's oh. not that, that Spartacus isn't a jolly fun show. Yes. It is. I just, I just don't think that we could talk through an episode. Could we? Actually, I, I'm not... Do, do you think our, our movie commentary shows came out well? 
definitely no idea. I don't listen to our show. We haven't done any since. We've not. So there was a certain feeling on my part that maybe they didn't come off as well as mm. as perhaps we would hope. But anyway. Oh, well, we sat in our house for four weeks. Yeah, we got a summer off out of it, which is a good deal as far as I'm concerned. Guys! Your listeners are telling you what they want to hear. And unlike me, you receive seemingly nothing but endless requests to talk about manga, anime, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and tons and tons and tons of other crap I could not give a crap less about. You're actually into the topic they want to hear you discuss. Why on God's green earth would you not want to do that? Um, see, I get what you're saying, which is why we did throw out the in an episode that may not have gone live at the time you wrote this email, that if people did want us to cover stuff that was non-comics related for a week or so, yeah. in a series of special episodes that we are planning in between the end of this season and the beginning of next season, when we will launch on the Two True Pimps yes. network fully. Only it's not Two True Freaks at all, in fact, sometimes there's three or four. It depends on the show. <laughs> yeah. the, the core is if, two. If the show... They should change the name of the show. No, they shouldn't. Three true freaks, four true freaks, depending on how many they are. Two true know. freaks and a couple of helmsmen. Yeah. And a couple of red shirts. That's what you should do, Scott. That's what you should totally do. Your two true freak shirts should be black, but the ones that you send out to people should be red. Yeah. And the black ones are the, the, the mythical collector yeah. item. because we've got collector item ones. We do. So we're yeah, all right. Yeah. But red ones for everyone else, because they're expendable crew members. Yeah. That's an excellent idea. That's my idea, that. Do you think they're actually expendable crew members who, by the end of the film, turn out not to be expendable whatsoever? But like in that film, The Expendables, yeah. which shocked everyone by featuring no one that was expendable. Or it was crap. And that as well. Anyway. So anyway, yeah, we, we have thoughts about doing a couple of specials that are nothing to do with comics, if people wanted us to do that. Some random thoughts on Pew 52 Part 2. <laughs> The funny thing about this is he makes no comments whatsoever about the new 52 comics, which is just hysterically funny. <laughs> Andy, I know exactly what you mean about having a new respect for George Lucas. As part of my homework for our upcoming Marvel Comics panel at Star Wars Celebration, I am listening back to the very earliest episodes of Star Wars Monthly Mondays, and good God are they rough. Ironically, I was thinking about doing some special edition treatment on some of them when I heard you mention having the same thoughts about the old episodes you're putting up on the TTF feed. I feel you, my friend. It is tempting, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it really is. If we had the raw audio for them, I would have fixed it. Would you an, make a special I edition would, version? I would have made an all-new version of those early episodes. I didn't know what the envelope tool was. I don't know what the envelope tool is. That explains a lot. What? I'm only kidding. What the envelope tool lets you lower the audio track underneath your talking. And then it lets you bring up the audio when you finish talking. All oh, right, that would help. Actually. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll show you how to do that. Michael Bailey told me about the envelope tool. Oh, a good six months into us doing the show, yeah. and it was one of those. Holy crap! Why didn't nobody ever tell me about this before? Yeah. And it was brilliant. And it's like I feel it's at that point that I started really getting good and experimental yeah. with the editing. Once somebody had said, and it was a lovely <laughs> message from Mike. It was just Andy. You do know what the envelope tool is, don't you? And I'm like, I know not of this envelope tool of which you speak. And then he Does told it me what it did. Three tracks to a certain <laughs> specific location as long as I have the Queen's head upon the envelope. <laughs> I lick the back of the Queen's head. You don't lick stamps anymore. No. So yes, yes. If, but the raw audio files take up far too much room. Yeah. So they've, they've long since disappeared into the ether. Uh, I don't think we have the raw audios now, which is a shame because if we did, we would still have that second episode that we scrapped. 
Oh, yeah. Which it would be nice to actually listen to that again now and score it properly now that we know how to use Audacity yes. and see if it really was, was as bad as we thought it was, yeah. Mm. But well, it was quite bad because you only read the issues five minutes before we did it. Where is that? Yeah. And you call me a slacker. <laughs> I do, yeah. Speaking of our little show, I couldn't believe my ears when you said you can't tell the difference between a Chris-edited episode and one that I edit. Really? Because I'm not sure how to take that. I'm sure you intended it as a compliment, but it's a little soul-crushing to hear. Ah, no, don't. <laughs> he takes everything I say wrong, doesn't he? It's that gold credit card of his. It's it that gold credit card he's got, yeah. Um, I think that's what you want. You don't want there to be a difference between two people editing the same show. That'll turn you into our show. No, see, I don't... There's... Hmm... I was just going to say there's no difference, but there is, actually. Yeah. I think that you do want... With something like Two True Freaks, you do want a, a feeling of uniformity to the editing. You don't want the editing to call attention to itself. Yeah. The fact that you have music and background noises and all that stuff is what makes the shows different and great, and it's yeah. fantastic. But at the same time, people aren't tuning in to listen to the editing. No. So the editing should complement what you're talking about. And it should be what you're talking about that engages the listener. And I, my personal opinion is if two different people are working on the same show they should both be working towards making that show sound like that show yeah you shouldn't have like an episode of Star Trek one week that's an abstract Andy Warhol painting and then next week it's back to being a normal episode of Star Trek okay that doesn't happen so to totally take it as a compliment that this, this show sound the same mm-hmm. doesn't mean they sound crap that's <laughs> not what I said I did want to tell you, though, that the way you described your editing process is the right way, meaning it's the way I do it. (laughs) There's the right way, and then there's your way. Yes, there's the right way, and the Scots way. The Scots way is the way to do it. I generally listen through the episode taking notes, then I whittle it down, add some music and fart noises, then encode it and listen to it on the run in the car, and just generally putting around the house so that I get a feel for how it sounds, then make corrections as necessary. Sounds like you're doing much the same way, and I just wanted to send you a telly pat on the back because I know that is both meticulous, professional, and only slightly insane. Yeah, I think Angela would agree with him that it's... How can you carry on listening to your own voice? I, I don't bother with that. I edit it and then give it to you. Yeah, and then I do the listening to it and yeah. suggest alterations. Yeah. Which, we haven't... I haven't made you make alterations, have I? Except for yesterday. Oh, the, the episode that went live today, I listened to yesterday and there was one bit in the... That went live today? Yeah. That went up today, dude. <laughs> That's why I needed you to edit it quickly. Right, right. <laughs> so I haven't listened to your fixes... Have you not? I just trusted that you did it and put it all. I did it, yeah. Alright, fair enough. I even cut it down to halfway. Oh, good. That's very good. You really can't tell the difference between a show Chris and I edit? No, Scott. Sorry. <sighs> Heavy sigh. Mm. Scott H. Gardner, professional Scott H. Gardner impersonator. <laughs> I can't imagine there's a big demand for Scott H. Gardner impersonators. Probably not. Especially if you can just get the real thing. Well, yeah. P.S. Read some Wrights and Wayne Swamp thing already. Damn it. Okay. I thought the Bernie Wrights and Lenween stuff wasn't that good. Um, wasn't that Scott's point last time that it sucked and that's why Alan Moore's run was good? Oh, he did say that, didn't he? He did yeah. say it sucked until Alan Moore came on board. Maybe Wayne and Wrightson did a run and then whoever was in between them right. made it suck. I wouldn't know because I don't know enough about Swamp Thing to be able to comment. Thank you, Scott. Scott can be found over at Two True Freaks. Go and listen to his shows. Our final email tonight. Feast or Famine, once again. Mm is from the illustrious Luke Giaconetta. Hi, Luke. Hello, Luke. Do not bring your evil here, I warn you, is the subject heading. 
which is good. Got no room in our barn. Go pick your evil elsewhere. <laughs> Fabulous secrets were revealed to me the day I held aloft my magic sword and said, By the power of Leyland's! Masters of the Universe, dude. I didn't know that. Did you? You ever seen He-Man? How have you seen He-Man? I don't know. There was a reboot not long ago. Yeah, that was crap. Have you, have you ever seen the originals? Bits of it. I was going to say the, the originals are video. good, but they're not, really. That, that party video where he's singing what's going on. <laughs> hey, fellas, I just listened to your second New 52 episode covering Swamp Thing. You know what did cover Swamp Thing? What? Player in them. two Swamp Thing movies, even the very silly sequel with Heather Locklear in. And the TV show was not bad. It wasn't a world beater, but it wasn't a dog either. Dick Duroc made for a very good Swamp Thing, but I feel bad for him having to wear that costume for upwards of 50 or 60 hours a week during shooting the series. Part of the problem for the series was that USA Network would often wear episodes out of order, and the show's plots tended to be on the continuing side. This led to a lot of audience confusion week to week. Another interesting note was the series was shot at Universal Studios, Florida. For a long time, the swamp set was actually an attraction at the park. You couldn't walk through it or anything, but it was right there for you to look at and marvel at the detail of the set. I saw it the first time my family went to Universal Studios, and I always thought it was cool to have this hyper-detailed swamp sitting in the middle of a theme park in Orlando. Evidently, the crew went down to the Everglades to shoot some actual swamps, but the set looked a lot better on film. Yeah, sets often do. It's, it's quite an interesting thing, that, when people... When sets you know, better than... Yeah, when you've done the real thing. Yeah because they can design them specifically film and you hear that a lot on DVDs DVD audio commentaries and behind the scenes things that they actually do go to the location and it's not as good and it's not as good to film in so it's better to build a set well you're building it to film in yeah you're building it to film in so you're cutting out all the problem of having to move cameras around in a swamp yeah for a start I ended up picking up the first two issues of the new Swamp Thing, continues Luke, but I had to stop after that for financial reasons. I generally like the first two stories, even if what the so-called comics journalists would describe as utterly horrific. The guy turning their own heads backwards was more amusing than stomach churning to me. <laughs> yeah, we thought that was funny as well, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. But we have quite a high tolerance for horror films, don't we? I believe this has more to do with me than with what Snyder and Paquette were producing, though. Not every reader is the horror hound like I am. No, we... Well, I, the only one that got to me was Animal Man bleeding from his eyes. Yeah. I, but I just don't like that. Although, I think I grew up watching, like, 70s, 80s horror films where it was all guts and explosions and naked women who don't know how to use a razor. Yes! Excellent! Because <laughs> it was the 70s, dude. <laughs> got bush. <laughs> Anyway, yes, I was enjoying it, but ended up dropping it because I was enjoying other New 52 titles. I had not planned on buying it anymore. Titles such as Wonder Woman and Aquaman. Of course, four of the titles I were reading was cancelled in the first wave of them after issue 8. Oh, Mac, Men of War, Blackhawks and Hawk and Dove. So I probably could have afforded to keep reading Swamp Thing the whole time and just paid a couple of extra bucks for six months. What did you say? So none of the good ones. Oh, Mac was alright. I liked Oh, Mac. Men of War was... I'm, right. Well, I'm willing to give Men of War right. a chance, but like we said last week, that'll be in the 50p bits. Hawk and Dove, I'm skimming, uh, skimming over. Yeah, but that was before Liffield. Was it? Liffield only came on. No, he didn't. He did it from the start. Did he? Yes, and sure. he moved on to Grifter and Hawkman after that got cancelled. Oh, right, okay. I'll take your word for that. As such, I had a general idea of what to expect in the first two issues when you guys talked about them, but was pleasantly surprised when hearing the other details. I'm a fan of monsters. <laughs> yeah. Seriously? I did not know that about Luke. No. 
as you may have surmised from the fact that my podcast is about giant monsters and all, and I like monster comics, so the return of DC's preeminent muck monster character to the mainline DC universe is very appealing to me. Much like with the Flashpoint episode, I'm probably going to pick up the trade of this and maybe take a look at a regular title again, and evidently Animal Man as well. The pacing is a very real issue, I agree, but I think Andy's point of that if you bought seven issues without seeing the real Swamp Thing, then you're in for the long haul was valid. Something interesting about the various field entities such as the green, the red and the rot. Not sure if this is just an Earth 2 thing, but in the latest issue of Earth 2, number 3, which I've not read yet, Solomon Grundy returns to the land of the living, as Solomon Grundy is wanted to do, but his inner monologue says that he is the right defender of the green, revealed earlier in the issue to be Alan Scott, Green Lantern, who is given his powers by a green flame acting as the spirit of the Earth. Grundy goes on to say that he is the servant of the grey, and that the grey seeks to conquer the green. So the green of the world of plant life and vegetation, the red covers the world of flesh and blood, the rot seems to be involved with waste and decay. What about the grey? The use of Grundy would suggest the realm of the truly dead, not the dying like the rot. The grey is seen spreading throughout the planet, killing vegetation and animals wherever it touches. Perhaps the grey is the Earth 2 equivalent of the rot, or are they complementary to each other? It will be interesting to see how the grey is developed over on Earth 2 and if it makes its way over to Earth 1. Good point. I've not read issue 3 yet, as I mentioned. I've not read it. But good. Okay. I like Earth 2 and Wolf's fine. Oddly, as of this writing, I'm also reading the miniseries The Infernal Man Thing over at Marvel. This is a story written by the late, great Steve Gerber, which has been sitting in the Marvel vault for a number of years. So between that and this episode, there has been a lot of muck-encrusted swamp monsters going on in my head in the last few weeks. I would recommend Infernal Man Thing, which is Gerber at his intelligentsia-styled best. Marvel was also kind enough to serialise the original issue of Man Thing, which this story is a sequel to as a backup in the series. Like most Man Thing stories, it's more about the confused and very damaged people who seem drawn towards the swamp and all the nexus of all realities than the Man Thing himself. Yeah, I'm, I'm meaning to check out Infernal Man Thing just because I like Steve Gerber. Is it not giant-sized? No, giant-sized Man Thing was a completely different thing. No, Giant Size Man Thing was a comic. This is the Infernal Man Thing. And they're both about the same dude? They're both about the Man Thing. So it's just... <laughs> but I, I don't want to see a Giant Size Man Thing. Okay. Ron Jeremy's got that market covered. <laughs> Looking forward to hearing about Animal Man later this week. Although, to be honest, I'm more interested in hearing your guys' take on The Flash, which I am enjoying very much currently. Thanks, and keep it up. Well, we hope you enjoyed our take on The Flash. Luke, thank you very much for listening in. Luke does Earth Dispense Directory. Earth Destruction Directive. Yeah. I, I always get that wrong, don't I? Yeah. Sorry, Lou. Such a tricky name. It is. It's uh, That's on the True True Freaks Network as well. Be gone and listen and enjoy and share. That's it for emails this week. If you want to email us, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. If that's where you address your email to, it will get to us. Michael and I will read it and then read it on the show. Mm-hmm. We don't censor emails. Do we not? Apart from... Under the International Treaty of Spoilers. Oh, so if people send in swearing, we keep the swearing in. Yeah, but we bleep it later. Ah, right. But we, we do read Oh, we it. don't change. We don't, right, no. Okay. We don't edit people's emails. Right, okay. Okay. Uh, that's it, meals done for this week. Not made too many, as I mentioned, Feast and Famine. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Tales of the Teen Titans, The Judas Contract. The series is legendary. Known the world over. I think it's only fair that I should warn you guys. You don't stand a chance against me. 
undoubtedly one of the greatest Japanese franchises of all time. Created in 1989 by Hiro Toriyama, the success of this manga and anime series continues to thrive today. But it won't be too much longer before Goku gets here. What's a Goku? Filled with action, humor, and drama, this influential work is rightfully regarded as one of the greatest Eastern series ever made. You ready, Gohan? Podcast that's coming. Welcome to the end of your life, and I promise it's going to hurt. Join me, Diamond Morgan Grant, and my co host, Jesse Garrett. What is it? As we take you. There's no stopping you! The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. That's over 9,000. Coming soon. And we're back. Mm-hmm. And I always wait till Michael has just stuffed his face with biscuits before I say that. I'm uh, you right there, Michael? I'm fine. It's very good. Yeah, you having good. a good day? Mm, How's fine. it been today? Mm, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so professional. And so, to the new Team Titans. Not the old Teen Titans. No, well, technically, I suppose they are the old Teen Titans now. All the Teen Titans that totally never happened. That as well. Damn you, Didier. Let us journey. I, I now know how they all felt the crisis. Even the crisis on Infinite Earth didn't wipe away the new Teen Titans completely. It changed Donna Troy's origin, but okay. other than that, everything else was pretty much as it was. Now, because of the new Fifty Two, and now it was Nightwing all along. Yeah. Yeah, what well, was he? Never Robin. Either. Oh, wait, no, he was Robin. Anyway, to the new Teen Titans. Let's just journey back to when I was a wee tyke. Carry on doing that. Always on the hunt for US comic books. And marvel at how this kid raised on a diet of UK imprints of mostly Marvel material came to read and love this most Marvel of DC comics. DC would frown upon that. DC would probably frown upon that. It does not make it any less true. No, I mean, I mean, you're saying it's a Marvel DC story. It's a very Marvel-esque book, is okay. the point that I'm trying to make. Okay. The new Teen Titans had been around for a year when I first discovered them. As I have bored our lovely listenership with many times before, and Michael. I've not had one of these for a while. I read the UK Marvel reprints weekly magazines. Oh, so does that mean you're, you're looking forward to it this time? In the loosest terms. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, anyway, I got a vaguer understanding of the DC universe from the UK Batman and Superman annuals, the monthly black and white and actually very classy reprint series, The Superheroes, which had painted covers and articles as well as reprints of notable DC strips. But for the most part, if I had a sperm on it, it normally went to Marvel books, with the only DC comics I looked at being Batman and Detective comics. Occasionally I would buy Brave and the Bold, because you got two for one, and that as well taught me who different people were in the DC universe. And if a cover particularly appealed to me, I picked up Superman Action Comics or DC Comics Presents. 
until Gil Kane started working on action comics that I picked up every week, every month. Okay. Because I love Gil Kane. I gravitated towards the team-up books, obviously, because these would invariably introduce me to new characters I didn't know or only knew a little bit about. So I did pick up DC Comics Planet and Brave and the Bulk, although they were the very definition of hit and miss. Yeah. Much like Marvel Team-Up and Marvel 2 in 1. However, the new Teen Titans was picking up some buzz, largely due to its promotion as DC's X-Men. It didn't hurt that the two creators, Marv Wolfman and George Perez, were primarily known as Marvel people. The buzz, such as it was back in the early 1980s, was normally through Starburst magazine, a sci-fi news and reporting mag similar to Starlog in the US, which would report on the Eagle Awards, where it started to get notable mentions. The first issue of the new Teen Titans that I picked up was issue 13, Unlucky for some, not for me, apparently. Cover dated November 1981 with a US on sale date of August 6th, 1981. I remember exactly where I was when I bought this. It was the market stall in the arcade in town. The vendor's still there. You know that news agent's in the market? In town? No. And then you walk in the market double doors, and on your right hand side there's the newsstand with the newspapers and puzzle bags and stuff. Okay. He used to sell comics. Okay. And that's where I picked up New Teen Titans issue first. Comics sent away to specialist stores. Yeah, we will get into that again. Uh, it used to carry a small selection of US mags, nothing anything spectacular. Yeah. But on this particular cold and windy day, so I probably got this in early 1982, I was in all the cold and windy could be any time in this country really yeah, could, yeah. although it's been quite sunny recently I was immediately attracted to the cover an excellent George Perez Romeo Tang Al cover of Robin Cyborg and Kid Flash in the jungle aiming a tortured figure that is hung via vines from the entranceway to what could have been a mausoleum where the trespassers will be executed sign hung from his neck if you know the cover you'll recollect that it is typically Perez with every single blade of grass in that jungle being meticulously rendered did you look at that one? No. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So you did your research then? Um, yeah, I read the issues. <laughs> That's as far as it goes. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. You did actually read them though this week. I did read them. I'm very impressed. My 11-year-old self was thoroughly engaged by the cover. I knew Robin, of course, and I had a vague idea who the other two were from ads in other DC comics, but who was the guy hung out to dry? Was he a robot or some kind of cyborg? Was he dead or alive? The cover haunted me. I turned over my 20 shiny pennies, went home, and read the comic. Twice. In a row. That good. That good. Over the course of the pages then, I was introduced to the gorgeous Donna Troy, a.k.a. Wonder Girl, and one of my first comic book crushes. Okay. Really. Uh, it was mighty miffed that colleague Garfield Logan had been shot by somebody called the Terminator and was clinging to life on Paradise Island. I met Coriander, a princess of Tamaran and warrior woman, though possessed of an innate sweetness, and Raven, a cold and calculating character. I learned that Robin, along with Cyborg and Kid Flash, were in the jungles of Uganda, where they were looking for the character on the cover called, appropriately enough, Robot Man, that Madame Rouge and General Zal had murdered some team called the Doom Patrol and nearly killed Robot Man, and the Teen Titans were there to rescue somebody called Steve Dayton. I knew no None of these people before the story began, with the exception of Robin. I didn't know who the Titans were, or this was the third incarnation of the team. I had no idea who the Doom Patrol were or why they were important. Over the course of this single issue, that was in the middle of a storyline, I learned all the characters' names, some of their backstories, I got characterisation and humour and some fantastic artwork. Arguably, the Teen Titans showed me that good comics didn't have to be Marvel comics, and I had to have more. I started picking up the series from this point whenever I could and hunted down the back issues, paying a whopping £4 for issue number one. Really? That's a lot of money when comics cost 25p. 
at that point. So that gives you some idea of how much I enjoyed this series. Just paying for a normal issue now, though. Yeah, pretty much. It was, hands down, the series most responsible for me finding US comics, as there was a point where, whatever happened, I had to have the new issue of the Teen Titans. Slowly I learned the members, Dick Grayson, Robin, the Teen Wonder. Victor Stone, Cyborg, Princess Coriander, Starfire, Donna Troy, Wonder Girl, Wally West, Kid Flash, Garfield Logan, the Changeling, and Raven, who didn't seem to have any other name. Okay. Why the is Titans? Isn't that her real name, though? I think it, that's just all she's known as, isn't it? Yeah. Raven, if memory serves. Why the Titans? Why did this boot grab me unlike any other comics of the time? Certainly DC Comics. Um, no idea. Okay. Perez's artwork was obviously an attraction and the fact the book felt like a Marvel comic didn't hurt but the real attraction as usual of this era of comic book was the subplots and one particular subplot subpot? that's like subpar marijuana isn't it? <laughs> yeah one particular subplot was of prime importance the story of Tara Markov Terror Tara Markov's story has often been called DC's answer to the Dark Phoenix story over in Marvel's X-Men books, but I've never seen the correlation. Tara Markov's story in Titans was plotted out from the beginning, and Wolfman and Perez took an interesting approach to the tale wherein we, the reader, knew something about the character that the characters in the story didn't know. And that's what made it gripping. The actual story goes all the way back to issue one. The Titans are brought together by Raven, but are watched by Grant Wilson, who wants them destroyed for ruining his relationship with his girlfriend Carol and trashing their apartment. In actuality, Grant was already a bonehead and had trashed that relationship himself. The Hive, a super-secret nefarious organisation, promised to see his wish become a reality. In issue two, we meet Deathstroke, the Terminator, a super-skilled super-assassin. The Hive, hierarchy of international vengeance and elimination, wants him for a job, but he refuses. The Hive, therefore, give his powers to Grant. Calling himself the Ravager, he tackles the Titans and is assisted by Deathstroke, because Grant's powers are operating at an accelerated rate, and the more he uses them, the quicker he will die. He does die, and Deathstroke, revealed to be Grant's father, Slade Wilson, takes on the Hive's contract to destroy the Titans. Well, like this, and rereading this as an adult, there were numerous holes in this plot, not least of which are Grant's motivations, which are very weak, and Slade's taking of his contract as a matter of honour when he knows full well the Hive were responsible for the death of his son, not the Titans, was a bit dubious. But where we start from wasn't as important as where we go. Okay. Again, you didn't read any of this. No. Did you know any of this going in? No. Okay, fair enough. Deathstroke cameoed in issue 9, before returning with a vengeance in issue 10, where he kidnaps Cyborg's lady friend, Sarah Sims, for a battle to the death. Deathstroke pays the Hive back for killing Grant, but the Titans survive, although Garfield Logan, Changeling, is almost killed, and he still swears to fulfil his contract to off the Titans. Over the coming months, we met Trigon, Raven's evil father, Blackfire, Coriander's evil sister. Didn't any of these people have a healthy relationship with their families? Apparently not. Cultist Brother Blood, The Brotherhood of Evil, an annual and a four-issue miniseries. Issue 28 introduced Terra, a.k.a. Tara Markov. In the middle of robbing a bank, Terra tells Changing that her parents have been kidnapped and she is only robbing the bank to rescue them. After a fight in McFeinstein, Gar takes Terra down and takes her to the Titans, who say they will help. After taking down the terrorists that kidnapped Tara's parents, Tara is informed that they are dead. There's some 
bollocks about Tara's father being a king and having a wicked stepmother that changelings start questioning in issue 29. Despite the misgivings of Raven, who senses a disturbance in the Force, Terra is welcomed onto the team in issue 30, albeit reluctantly in some quarters. Cyborg definitely feels that something isn't on the up and up, and Wally West, aka Kid Flash, flat out tells Tara he doesn't believe a word she's saying. Issue 34 is pivotal to the overall story arc. In it, it's confirmed that Slade Wilson is essentially Bruce Wayne, but an assassin, complete with loyal retainer Wintergreen in place of Alfred. There are mentions of his ex-wife Adelaine, and when Slade peruses pictures of his family, there is another child in the photo as yet unmentioned. Tara celebrates her 16th birthday and Donna Troy gets engaged to Terry Long, but the meat of the story is that Deathstroke kidnaps a stockbroker to lure the Titans to a grudge match, but it's Terra that thwarts his plan at every turn. When she takes down Deathstroke and saves Kid Flash's life in the process, Deathstroke escapes, but the rest of the Titans believe that Terra has proven herself, and tomorrow they will make her an official member of the Titans and tell her everything. However, that night when Tara returns home, she meets with Deathstroke, and she tells him the plan is working. The Titans haven't got a clue. For me, this was a huge reveal. Whilst Tara had an incredibly abrasive personality, she was still somehow likeable, and the very idea that she was a turncoat was an incredible plotting masterstroke that, if you read these issues again, as I did for this recap, is incredibly obvious in hindsight. This, for me, is where this scores over the Dark Phoenix saga. Whilst there is no doubt Dark Phoenix is a comics masterpiece, it was made upon the fly, by the admission of all involved, and the ending got changed at the last minute. Two things that could not have been done with this story, lest it gut the entire thing. There was also the incredibly adult subtext that Deathstroke was sleeping with Tara. Never overt, like it would be in today's books, but heavily implied. Double icky when you consider that Tara was 15 when she was introduced and Deathstroke is clearly in his late 40s. Ooh, mm. That's just a bit wrong, isn't it? It's, it's good to skip that out in the cartoon. One would imagine that that was not present in the cartoon. Oh. But I've never seen the cartoon. So that's where you'll come in. Yes. Following the introduction of Vigilante, Terra is given her own picture in the hall on Titan's Tower, and her own cheer, and in a team-up with Batman and the Outsiders, we learn that she and the team's Geoforce are brother and sister. This gives Gar pause for thought as certain events don't line up, but ending the threat of the Fearsome Five and investigations into the truth about Donna's past and the whereabouts of Brother Blood get in the way of them being able to follow this up. Issue 39 is another pivotal one in the Tara Markov storyline. We learn that via cameras installed in her contact lenses, Deathstroke is monitoring everything, and he and Tara are engaged in a physical relationship which, as we've also mentioned, is double plus icky. To see if neither is going soft, they take part in a war games test only for Deathstroke to be shocked by how powerful and ruthless Tara has become. Later, Tara's contact lenses record the Titan's secrets as Wally West quits both the team and superheroics as he gives up the role of Kid Flash and Dick Grayson turns his Robin ID over to Jason Todd in what was to be the last issue of the new Teen Titans. Which all came from... Marv Wolfman getting fed up that he couldn't do anything of import with Robin in the Teen Titans. Okay. Because Robin was considered a Batman character. And if he wanted to do anything with Robin, he had to run it by the Bat offices. Right. So it was him who came up with the idea of Dick Grayson packing and being Robin, because that way he could have Dick Grayson and do whatever he wanted with the character. Okay. And he didn't have to keep running over to, D- to the Batman editorial office and say, can I have Robin smoke this week? No, can't have that. Okay. Can I put Robin in long pants? No, that's not happening. So, so the bat writers were okay with this? 
The Batwright, yes, because that meant the Batwriters could give Batman a new Robin right. that they could completely control, and they didn't have to coordinate what he was doing with another editorial team. Right. And that's how it worked back in the day. That's where Jason Todd came from. Okay. Was that Ginger Jason Todd? That was Ginger Jason Todd, yeah. The Jerry Conway version of Jason Todd. So the new Teen Titans was post pre-crisis, and the Tales of was post-crisis. No, 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 we don't got to the crisis yet. All oh, right. Um, Tales of the Teen Titans came about because they launched a new comic called the New Teen Titans. Right. Which was a comic shop only book. Okay. By Wolfman and Perez. Right. This, Tales of the Teen Titans, became a reprint book. Right. Around issue 60. Reprinting the stuff from the comic shop only Teen Titans for people who couldn't buy the comics at comic shops. Okay. So for a year, there was an overlap where there was two Teen Titans books. This one mm-hmm. and the comic shop one. Right. And then this one went to reprint only, and the comic shop one was the only one you could buy new. Okay. Which actually led to me quitting the book, but we'll get to that right. when we get there. Um, issue 39, however, was a great issue. One of the few times Perez inked himself during the run of the series, and a huge turning point for the DC that continues to have ramifications to this day, even through numerous crises, zero hours, and reality shifts. Whether this also means that Deathstroke knew Batman's ID... Because now that he knows that Dick Grayson is Robin, it doesn't take a great quantum leap to work out who Batman is. I don't think it was something they ever adequately explained. Okay. Um, I certainly don't remember there being an issue about it. Maybe they talked about it in the letters page. Following the conclusion of the Brother Blood storyline, we finally get to what we're talking about this week, after this healthy preamble. Mm. Four years in the making, the newly renamed Tales of the Teen Titan kicks off with the Judas Contract in issue 42. It was released in North America on the 9th of February 1984 with a May cover date. Part 1, entitled The Eyes of Tara Markov, was by Marv Wolfman, George Perez and Dick Giordano, with letters by John Costanza and colours by Adrienne Roy. The cover has six TV screens representing the contact lenses Tara is wearing with monochromatic images of the Titans going about their business. Cyborg lifts something heavy, Dick Grayson poses for the winter catalogue, Raven does some drugs but does not inhale, and Starfire and Wonder Girl reenact the Amok Time episode of Star Trek. Changeling shows off his pet rocks and Deathstroke watches and waits. Overlaid in colour, Tara's eyes hang ominously over the proceedings. It's an excellent cover, building on the tension of nearly four years' worth of plot. The monochrome scheme sets off the red for Tara's eyes and the blue, red and yellow lettering for the cover copy combine exceptionally well to give the cover a very brooding, almost film poster-esque feel. What do you think of the cover, Michael? Um. (laughs) Come on. I wouldn't say it's an entirely eye-catching cover. Do you know what I think? See, I think the black and white, coupled with the colour only on the cover copy and her eyes, is very eye-catching. That seems quite a boring cover. Why? Well, because it's not showing any action or anything. It's just people standing about and posing. And yes. we have eyes. Yes, but the eyes are watching what they're doing. And the TV screens give that away. So okay. you do have the thing that, well, who is this girl and what is she watching these people for? Yeah. I think it's a really good cover. You are allowed. Other opinions are available. Well, apparently this person doesn't have a mouth. Why? Because there is no mouth. Maybe she's keeping it shut, which is quite rough for Tara. Well, <laughs> did the teeth not show through? Oh! The plot. 
Wonder Girl, in a civilian guise of Donna Troy, is a freelance photographer, and we did, and today we find her in a photography studio, taking photos of a swimsuit-wearing starfire in her civilian guise of Corey Anders fashion model. Later on, they head over to a swanky apartment, I mean really swanky, it's bigger than Monica's in Friends, where former Robin, Dick Grayson and Donna's fiancé Terry Long join them, and shortly afterwards Tara Markov, Terra, and Garfield Logan, Changeling, also arrive. After some subplot banter about Donna and Terry's upcoming wedding and some mention of how good Corey looks in a swimsuit, Tara and Gar escort Dick home on their way to meet up with Victor Stone, a.k.a. Cyborg, who is ice skating in Central Park with his lady friend Sarah Sims and a class of kids, all of whom has prosthetic limbs. After a pleasant day, Gar escorts Tara back to the float that escorts her over the bay to Titan's Tower, where they share their first kiss. After arriving at the tower, Tara encounters Raven, who is meditating. Raven informs her that there is a feeling of corruption around Tara, but Raven cannot be sure if it emanates from Tara, or is merely a reflection of her father, Trigon's own evil from within herself. Tara leaves, promising that, which, I'm saving you for myself. Throughout the day, Tara's contact lenses have been recording everything. The next day is training day at Titan's Tower. Cyborg proves he can still change the parameters of his synthetic body's programming by bench pressing five tons. Starfire and Wonder Girl engage in an Amazon vs. Tamaran gladiatorial combat, whereby Starfire emerges victorious for the fourth time in a row. Donna takes the defeat well, unlike Tara, who is humiliated and bested in battle with Changeling until she snaps, almost killing him. Raven senses great evil, and the other Titans are concerned, but it is Deathstroke himself who fears Tara has made a grave mistake. Tara tells him not to panic. They still trust her, don't they? Deathstroke points out that the Titans are no pushovers, even if the moment of truth is nigh. Unknown to Deathstroke, however, the Hunter is about to become the Hunted, as he is monitored by two shadowy figures. Dun, 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 dun. The issue itself. Ah, page one. The splash page. Yeah. A gorgeous shot of Coriander posing in a purple bikini. Okay. What's wrong with that? Um, Do you know, Gar used to call her Golden Globes. Really? Mm. No idea why. And Balloon Bod. Okay. I wonder why. <laughs> you can look, you know. I don't mind. Uh, whilst I know these are just lines on a page... The Teen Titans quite the sexy boot when I was 12 years old. Okay, then. Um, this is just one reason why. Or two reasons why. Until you get to that circular, big-eyed baby face. <laughs> She's got a very naive, innocent look to her, yes. And, and then it's like a child's face on a... a woman's body. And... Well, she's she's supposed to be 19 in Earth years. Okay. In the book. So she still is probably going to have a puppy-fat face. So I don't mind that too much. Um, moving swiftly past the page because Michael seems uncomfortable <laughs> um, the first page doesn't look like it was inked by Dick Giordano to me Okay. the first page looks like it was inked by Perez and I think that's very notable when you turn the page and look at Starfire in panel 3 of page 2 Yeah. and then compare it to page 1 yeah Okay. Oh, it does to me, yes, anyway. Um, page two, one of the reasons Corey's oversexuality worked is because it was in complete contrast to her character. She comes from a planet where clothing was optional, and there were no hang-ups about the body. Granted, when you look like she does, I can't imagine her having many hang-ups about her body. Okay. Uh, nevertheless, although Corey was a very sensual person, she was still quite naive in the ways of love and romance, and her relationship with Dick Grayson grew naturally over the course of the series, and they actually made a really cute couple. I love that she was taller than him. 
Yeah. Which I always thought was quite cool. She was not and never was somebody who used her looks to her advantage, often appearing completely oblivious that how she looked affected other people at all. And her gentle spirit endeared us to her as a character, especially as she was the complete opposite on the battlefield, where she turns into a Klingon warrior. Yeah. Um, well, not only does Tara have beaver teeth... <laughs> That's not very well, nice. Well, she's not a very nice person. That's true. Um, but... Does her eye camera take photos when she blinks, or is it the video camera? Because there's a click next to the picture in the next panel. Um. And surely, if you can hear a click every time you blink, you're gonna get. Yeah, I I did think putting the click in there was a bit of a mistake, to be honest with you, because like you say, it does kind of give it away that there's something going on. Mm. In previous issues, there's never been any indication that that was going on. And I don't remember from reading whether it's video or still images. I think it's still images, but I'm, I could be wrong about that. Given 1980s technology, bearing in mind that we still don't have contact lenses that film people, mm-hmm. I would imagine it's only still images rather than video. I mean, the, the still images are relayed directly to Deathstroke's pad, aren't they? Yeah. So I'm thinking it's still images, and I'm, pr- I'm thinking they don't click. Okay. I think that's just for the audience. Although we know that she's got contact lenses in that take photos at this point. Yeah. So it's kind of a redundant special effect, really. That's what I thought, anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, Page three. One of the problems of using the logo as part of the title, Tales of the Teen Titans in the Judas Contract, makes no sense. Just shortening it to the Teen Titans, or even the Judas Contract, a tale of the Teen Titans would have worked. In fact, all of this could have been completely avoided if they'd left off the word in. Yeah. Which does actually look... Like it was, edit- like it was added in later, yeah. It looks like that's a post-production add-on, doesn't it? Mm. So they could have just left that out and it would have been fine. But no, whatever. Um, I do love Terry's line about the difficulty of finding a private wedding venue. And he looks at Corey. Mm. Some of you are hard to disguise, is his line. To be fair... Surely it'd be easier to hide her than... Um, the Gal- green guy. Green, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that's a valid point. Donna Troy, I always found more attractive than, than Coriander when I was 12. Okay. I don't know. She just seemed more Linda Carter-esque. Fair enough. Maybe that's what it was. Gar invites Donna and Terry to get married at Dayton Estates, where he lives with his guardian, Steve Dayton, setting up issue 50, which is Donna and Terry's wedding. Okay. An entire issue of them getting married. It's not the best issue in the world. Is it not? But at least they don't have people crash the wedding. Fair enough. Like, like you thought they'd do. Yeah, like you, like you think they're going to do. Uh, page four. One of the best things about the Titans over the years were the way Wolfman and Perez built up the friendships in the book. Donna and Dick have a lovely brother-sister dynamic that was handled really well by the creative team that was lost as a product of various crises and now the new 52, which is a shame. It was nice to see the characters having a friend and a life away from superheroics. You don't get this anymore, do you? No. It's just one big event to the next big event to the next big event. There's no subplots with the characters. There's no getting to know the characters. The characters don't know anyone who isn't a superhero. Yeah. There's no Peter Parker dynamic anymore with his friends. We were his friends with people that aren't superheroes. And well, the same with this, they were friends. What in? In Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider- I'm not about DC. You said Peter Parker, so... So that could confuse a stupid person. It did. (laughs) 
Yeah, so I, I just liked that they emphasised the friendship of the team outside of them fighting. In fact, you get more of them being buddies than you do of them being teammates. Yes. I like that. Uh, the dialogue in this is a lot better than Wolfman's run on Spider-Man, which featured some exceptionally sloppy plotting in places. He did a run on Spider-Man. He did a run on Spider-Man, yeah. Okay. Issue 199 of that book has some god-awful mistakes in it. Okay. And I was reading it because I won it on eBay and I read it in yeah. isolation and I'm looking, that's that's wrong, that's bad, that's that's a mistake. <laughs> and you're looking, well, who can I blame here, the writer or the editor for not catching this? Wolfman was both the writer and the editor. All right. So you're like, okay, nobody's passed the book to though then, Marv. No. But here, it's much better. The banter between Changeling and Terror is funny, if a little corny. But remember, they are teenagers. And Dick Grayson's answer to Tara's impertinent observation that she thought you hung upside down in the Batcave is wry and shows that he doesn't take himself too seriously. I liked that. Batman does that. I perch in the birdhouse. Mm. I thought it was funny. Little birdhouse in his soul, perhaps. (laughs) Page six and seven are just charming. Too often in superhero comics and films as well, we see a character that is good at everything because his specialty is in that area. So Victor Stone was an athlete, so we expect that he's good at all athletic sports. Here, we see that it's not the case, as Vic is absolutely terrible at ice skating. And having been teased by his girlfriend and the kids under her charge is a lovely, sweet moment, highlighted by a pretty obvious gag at the top of page seven which still works just due to the way it's played, Mm. where he loses, he stands up on his own on the ice skates and ends up on his ass. Yeah. Don't we all? Um, I didn't so much ice skating. I did roller skating. Okay. I was actually not bad at ice skating. I wasn't good. No, I But I wasn't bad at it. I held onto the wall with all the other four-year-olds. Did you? (laughs) Like, here I am, 14-year-old me with all the five-year-olds. See, I picked up ice skating pretty quickly. Okay, I didn't. Um, Vic mentions Titans, uh, Titans West. Uh, in the animated show, we started Titans East. And right. All the members were secretly working for Brother Blood. Right. So having never read any of the Teen Titans West stuff or any of the Teen Titans, hmm. I'm assuming that the animated show was based on that. And they even did their own Judas contracts as well. But that came before the Titans East stuff. Uh, well, at this moment, there is no other Titans team. No. So I think he may have just been making a gag at that point. Where is it? The next page. All right, page now. Page eight, sorry. Okay, maybe the page after that. Yeah, all of a sudden I wish Titans okay. West was in operation. Yeah. yeah, so like the Avengers ended up with the West Coast Avengers. The and Great Lakes Avengers. The Great Lakes Avengers yeah. and the Idaho Avengers. And the, and the Justice League ended up with Justice League Antarctica. Did they? Yeah, in a really funny Justice League quiet. Who did polar bear? Yeah, the polar bear that came along. So, yeah. So there isn't actually a, a Titans West in operation at this moment. Page nine, Tara and Gar's kiss is a solid payoff to a moment that's been building since they met. It's also a wonderful swerve. Now, the reader is in on Tara's scheme, but it all becomes a matter of how long before the Titans find out. But also there's a very real possibility Tara could turn on Deathstroke, which a number of the readers were still in favour of. Yeah. at this point this shows us that Tara is not beyond redemption and that the story could still take a left turn okay if you bought into that did you buy into that um no did you know the outcome of this yeah the anime, I've seen because the anime of the cartoon story. see I went through a great effort to not tell you how this played out and then I was kind of like well I bet he probably knows from stuff like Kingdom Come and no. all that it stuff it is a cartoon based on it 
Well, it was a Teen Titans a, Go. Yeah. Right. Well, that was the comic. It was just Teen Titans as a cartoon. What was the theme to that? Teen Titans Go. Like Puffy, I'm a human. Oh, like Puffy, I'm a human. Yeah. yeah. Page ten ruins all of that. Yeah. Because Tara's pretty on the nose when she says to Raven, so you think I'm some kind of spy or something? Talk about signposting it. <laughs> oh, I'm totally not doing that. I'm totally not a spy. Um, but it's the thought bubble that's chilling, which I'm saving you for myself. Throws the last page in sharp relief. Tara is that good of an actress. Nowadays, she would have said bitch, wouldn't she? Yeah. Yes. Tara's annoying, though. Do you think? Yeah. Well, you've only read this. Yeah. You've not had the build-up to this. I find, I find her annoying in this a lot. Alright, fair enough. Okay, go on. Uh, page 11. Mm. Cyborg and Wolfman's writing is starting to annoy me now. Okay. Right, okay. Cyborg keeps saying, Lemme, in- instead of leave me. Slang, I, dude. I keep reading it as, let me. You know, what Lemme is actually short for. <laughs> yes. See, that doesn't quite work. Let me alone. It still does kind of kind of work, yeah, but, you know, we were still in the era of he, he's the guy who lives in the inner city, so he talks in slang, dude. Is he down in the hood? He's down in the hood. You saw where he lives. Oh, yeah. He never moved, did he? Does Tupac live next door to him? Tupac lives next door, yes. Page 11 through 20, just generally, before we go through. I like seeing the heroes refine and develop the power set. We never see James Bond stood in the manual for his Aston Martin, do we? No. Q kind of says, that does that, does that, that, and then he goes, right, I'll figure out how long as I go. The, all these guys just suddenly seem to have one button. Yeah, press that, this happens. Press that, this happens. Yeah, and then the next thing you know, he's in the middle of a major league car chase, and he knows, and he knows does, what yeah. all the buttons do. Yep. To be fair, Ian Fleming had him do that in the books, right. but he never does it in Did the film. Did he spend, like, three chapters reading the manual? No, he is a part of the double O agents. You have to do desk work for a couple of weeks a year. Okay. Like, um... Staff development. Day. Yeah, staff development stuff. Okay. And he spends his time reading up on the new manuals. That's right. how he just sits there, just doing nothing for three weeks. Fair enough. Um, so seeing the heroes develop and expand the powers was pretty cool. Page 13, on the bottom of page 13, Coriander... Starfire and Donna Troy Wonder Girl are squirring off for the Captain Kirk versus Mr. Spot battle, yes. Shit rip. Crika! Oh dear. I do love Vic's line here about the loser buys ice cream. And Donna's reaction, hey, wait, that's not in the... It was a lovely... Right? Start the combat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was fun. Come on, that was funny. It was funny. Good. Oh, I just don't like haagen so... Well, I'm sure he wouldn't make them buy haagen If you said, I'd rather have Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> or if he just says, you know, just buy me some ice cream, I don't care what it is. Yeah, just, just buy me ice cream, dude. Page 16, the cat fight between Starfire and Wonder Girl. Uh, whilst I'm not sure you can turn off from battle that quickly... Again, we see here the relationship building that we've been watching develop over the past four years. There's no animosity from Donna towards being beaten by Corey, which is a nice contrast to what we're about to see. Mm. Uh, I did like that following the battle in the water, when they go outside, Donna and Corey are wearing robes and have towels around their heads. Battle in the water? That's not a battle they're having in the water. No, they're having a big hug. Yeah. But they're both in the water. Cyborg and Beast Boy may have battles going on there, though, but... Yes. I do like the line about them fighting in the mud, though. 
<laughs> some mud wrestling going on. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Um, page 17 through 20 is the ter- Terror Changeling fight. Changeling is owning Terror throughout this fight, as well as humiliating it with these smart-ass comebacks. Now... Between two friends, this would have been acceptable. And they may even have laughed about it. But it interested me that Gar initially is winning. Mm. Begging the question, was Tara going soft on him? Or did he really have the upper hand? Because we've already seen a page or two ago that she was overconfidently building herself up. So is Tara all bluster? It doesn't seem so. Because when she opens fire with all she's got on page 20... It almost kills him. It almost kills him. So we get a Star Wars reference. As soon as we kiss a Wookiee. And uh, a mention of the Kerbos. And I'll be honest, I did find um, Changeling kicking snow up at Tara's face on page 19, disguised as a dog. Hysterically funny. (laughs) It would have been funny if he'd had a pee and then kicked it in her face. But maybe that would have been a bit gross for 1984. (laughs) Um, I think Tara's quite insulting to Odgar. See, even though... You know, they're in some sort of relationship and they're teammates. Now, surely someone stepped back and gone, wait a minute, do we actually want this person who's insulting members of our team? Especially considering he's not much of a team player and we've only just uh, brought her onto the team a few days ago. Funnily, that has been addressed in earlier issues. Kid Flash had no time for it. Okay. He just tell her to shut up and he point blank told her that her story makes no sense and I don't trust you. Okay. But he's quit the team at this point. Right. and gone off just to be Wally West. Cyborg and Changeling have often had this very antagonistic, insulting each other relationship. Yeah, but that so, was that's more of a Johnny Storm Ben Yeah, Grimm more of a Johnny Storm Ben Grimm thing. Whereas this is genuinely insulting. She them. is very, very insulting throughout the series. Yeah. And they do seem to turn a blind eye to her. It, the thing that you get reading the thing, they want to trust her more than they actually do trust her. But that causes them to, to be blind to her faults. Okay. Which ultimately leads to the downfall. Yes. So, so it is. It has been addressed, but I don't disagree with what you say. Mm. See, uh, Beast Boy and Terry's relationship in the animated show made sense mm. because she was an insultant. See, they were both really nice and sweet and cared for each other, I and mean, she was a, a nice person. And um, her worries here, I'm getting the impression that she doesn't care for him, and is it's an act. Which it is, but... Which it is, yes. See, that's why the ending was this was a kick in the face for the animated show, because she's a nice person, and all of a sudden it turns out she was bad with Deathstroke from the start. So, in the cartoon, was she always working for Deathstroke? Or did he turn her traitor? He manipulated her. See, in this, she's not a traitor. She's she's betraying them from the very beginning. Yeah. So she's arguably not a traitor, and he doesn't manipulate her and turn her. She, essentially, is evil all the way through yeah possibly that's a better story see maybe you're thinking that they're a bit on the nose here with how they're depicting terror especially since the reader knows yeah yeah but the characters don't know so are you of the opinion how could they not know something was up yeah right okay fair enough we do get a little bit of a niggle here which actually segues into what you were just talking about Raven has suspected Tara all along and even the others have openly questioned the logic gaps in her story. But T- Raven actually senses Terra being completely off the rails here, even before she snaps. But she says nothing about her. Mm. I'm not saying call her out at a team meeting, but I certainly think that taking Dick or Donna into her confidences wouldn't have gone amiss. If she'd just had a word with Dick Grayson or Donna Troy and said, something not right about her, keep your eye on her. Mm. 
Yeah. But she doesn't, and never does. And they kind of explain it that at this moment she's going through a rough time trying to suppress her own evil urges okay. because her dad's trigon. And she can't tell whether the evil feelings she's getting are coming from terror or are coming from her. Right. So they, they do kind of explain it a bit, but I still think she should have just gone and said, look, if I'm wrong, doesn't matter. Yeah. I've only told you. But if I'm right, you may want to keep an eye on her. That was my thinking anyway. The ending introduces the idea that Deathstroke isn't at the top of his game as the two shadowy figures, one a woman and one a blonde man, mentioned they wouldn't have been able to follow him normally. Um, I've gone through the entire issue and not mentioned the art, because it's quite easy to take Perez for granted, but it's undeniable that he and Wolfman were the Lee and Kirby to this team, with the book never being the same after one of them left. The art is gorgeous throughout, from the delicious splash page of Corey, to the detailed interiors of Donna's apartment, from the slums of New York to the grandeur of Titan's Tower. The art complements the story wonderfully. Dick Dick Giordano inks, if it is Giordano, conspiracy fans, gives a softer line to Perez's pencils that isn't as successful as his work under other inkers, but it's pretty hard to ruin somebody as great as this. And this is great. The story's quite low-key with the Titans going about their regular business with no real supervillain in sight. The undercurrent of danger is pervading through and the characters have no idea what's coming. Did they actually credit them in the issue? Who? Well, the anchor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the front page credits them on. Right. Page three. At least I thought it did. Well, there you go. Right. Page one, sorry. All right. By Marv Wolfman, George Perez and Dick Giordano. Or Dick Giordano Studios. Okay. I think um, there are some cool ads and such in this issue the meanwhile column is by Mindy Newell talking about how she broke into writing and the letters page contains information on the new comic shop only Teen Titans book to be launched soon and the death of comics being available everywhere followed I know that's around the time I lost the Titans uh, with letters all saying that the Titans aren't the same without Perez following a two issue stint by guest artist Keith Pollard best get used to that kids because uh Within a year or so, Perez will be gone. What did you like? Although you've really you've told us what you think going through it, really, haven't you? Yeah. Not a fan, then. Um, it's setting up a story. It's, it's arguably it's not. They've been setting this story up for two, three years at this point. Four, if you count the Deathstroke stuff. Well, okay. In that case, then it seemed kind of like a pause. A, a yeah, I'll give you that. Mood. It's it's a very low key beginning to the ending of a big storyline. Yeah, I'll go with that. Tales of the Teen Titans 43 came out on March 15th, 1984, with a June cover date, so I probably got this in June. The cover is by Perez, split into six panels. Terror attacks Raven in red. Changeling lies prone over a table in green. Cyborg, strapped to a chair, is passed out with smoke rising off of him in blue. Both Wonder Girl and Starfire lie passed out on the floor of their respective apartments in pink and yellow, and Deathstroke backhands Dick Grayson. Uh, the background detail in the artwork is simply awesome. It's just by Perez. There is no ink accredited. I like that cover as well. You probably don't like that one either, do you? No. Okay. Uh, personally, I think it would be better, this one, if it had been coloured properly. Yeah. I can understand the artistic choice of having them, the images black and white on the cover of the previous issue. Yeah. But in this case, I think it would have been better if they'd been coloured properly instead of just blocks of red and green and blue. I think that's probably the best cover You think? Yeah. Well, because something's actually happening on it, and it's not just people standing around. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Especially the third one where it is just people, people standing, standing around. around. Yeah. 
Entitled The Judas Contract Book 2, Betrayal. It was by Marv Wolfman, with uh, writer, co-creator, co-editor. George Perez was the artist, co-creator, co-editor. Mike DiCarlo was the co-inker. Dick Giordano was a co-inker. Adrian Roy was the only colorist. And Ben Oda was the only letterer. The plot. Dick Grayson is working at his desk when Deathstroke attacks. Dick has no time to wonder how Deathstroke knows his secret ID and engages him in a brief fisticuffs. Dick is smart and realises quickly that he's outclassed, so he lures Deathstroke into punching him towards the window. Dick plummets, uses his jacket to slow his fall and window outcroppings, and lands in the trash. He runs, albeit on a twisted ankle, and Deathstroke pursues him. The lady, who we saw last issue following Deathstroke, notes that if Deathstroke is fighting in public like this, he's both sloppy and desperate. Dick eludes Deathstroke in Central Park thanks to some passing joggers and, fearful, heads to Donna and Corey's apartment. He arrives only to find it wrecked. He finds a card from him to Corey and, knowing that he never sent a gift, pieces together what happened. He doesn't know if Donna was present so he heads to her studio. Reaching it, it quickly becomes apparent that Donna has also been taken and again, after analysing the scene, pieces together the circumstances. Following the trail, Dick heads first to Victor, discovering the worst, and then to the tower. The tower is trashed. Mounds of dirt are strewn over Raven's room and Dick is approached by a woman and a young blonde boy. She introduces herself as Adeline and Joseph and tells Dick that Terror captured Raven. Adeline details the plot, how Terror was always working for Deathstroke and how she's betrayed them after learning their secrets. Dick refuses to believe just yet and leaves to call Gar. Gar, however, is nowhere to be found. Adeline explains that she is Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke the Terminator's ex-wife, and Joseph is his son. In the Rocky Mountains, Deathstroke informs the Hive that the Titans are all theirs. Page one. Uh, I thought page one was gorgeous, even though nothing happens. Essentially, it's Dick Grayson after the typewriter. Yeah. But multiple panels show Dick working and the exterior of his apartment block, and then a shadowy figure appears at the window in the last panel. Yeah. There's lots of shots of zooming in on New York, showing us exactly where this is. Oh, the cityscape. Yeah, the cityscapes are really good, aren't they? Because there's none of that cheating and using photos in this. Mm. Which isn't always cheating. Byrne did it to great effect. Todd McFarlane did it to great effect. That's how they do it. Yeah. It annoys me when, say, artists like John Cassidy and Salvador LaRocca do it. Why? What's the difference between them doing it and McFarlane and Byrne doing it? Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> one example was in the giant-sized Astonishing X-Men. Yeah. Where it's two-page spread of a New York, a photograph of New York with just a drawn Spider-Man in the middle. Right. It's just all fo- a photo and very little John Cassidy. Well, I get what you're saying, because the Byrne and McFarlane ones, we covered the McFarlane ones when we did Spider-Man. Yeah. The McFarlane ones, they do look at least like they've done something to them, them in the artwork, like yeah. penciled over them or shaded them or something. So I get what you're saying. Um, if this is Dick's apartment, and we've no reason to believe it isn't, mm-hmm. why has he got a Grayson. name tag on yeah. his desk? Because <laughs> he forgets who he is. <laughs> yeah. Who am I again? He's like Memento. Or maybe he gets rid of that identity too. Yeah, he's given possible. up on Robin, he's given up on Dick Grayson. Now he's just going to be somebody completely different. Yeah. Uh, page two. Uh, also on his desk there's a picture of Corey that's miscoloured, so she has standard Caucasian skin colour. Mm. And Dick's using... Picture, I can't make that out. Is it his mum? don't know. Looks more like a guy with long hair, to be honest. Maybe it's something he's working on. 
Because I don't remember at this point if Dick had a job or not. He dropped out of college. And if you have a look... I'm sure Bruce was happy with that. No, he wasn't. <laughs> uh, if you have a look, he does a filing cabinet. It's implying that he keeps files on people. Yeah. So... I don't remember. I really don't freelance remember. Journalist? Maybe he was a freelance. He wasn't a journalist. He may have been a freelance private investigator because he'd be good at that, wouldn't well, he? Yeah. Spends issue doing it. Yeah, I always thought it would make sense for one of them to do that. Either yeah. Tim Drake get a job as a PI or Dick Grayson get a job as a PI. Batman Incorporated PI. Yeah. I always thought that would make sense. Yeah. Because you're actually using your skills to make a bit of money. I mean, I'm presuming Dick, Bra- Dick Grayson's not short of a bob or two. Mm. given that Bruce Wayne's his dad for all intents and purposes yeah. but he does strike me as well as somebody who would have his own job and want to earn his own money mm. Just that's just my thinking on it um, Dick's using a typewriter rather than a word processor mm. it's a sign of the times I want a typewriter just for the just for the sexy change yeah. yeah page three is an excellent fight scene uh, it's very brief as very quickly Dick gets Deathstroke's measure, realises he's outclassed and outsmarts him. There's a lovely close-up of Deathstroke's eyes uh, as he realises that Dick Grayson's outthought him. Mm. And just from that, it's a wonderful piece of artwork, because from one eye, because Deathstroke only has one eye, you can see that his facial expression is bugger (laughs) as he realises that he's been outthought by the Titan that he thought would give him the least trouble Mm. because he's the one with no superpowers. Um, the fight feels painful as well, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it really does feel like Deathstroke gives him a couple of good kickings, especially the last panel on page three, where he throws him on his back. Head up, first into the wall. Head first into the wall. Uh, and you do get the feeling that it's only Dick's training that allows him to get away from this relatively unscathed. I did like that he bust his ankle in the fall, though. Yeah. Which was a nice little touch. Little. That he sprained his ankle. Even for a gymnast and an well, acrobat. He did an exceptionally good job of thinking on his feet by throwing himself out the window, then using his coat, $300 leather jacket, it says here, to slow his fall. But he did still land in dustbins. Yeah. And back then they were metal dustbins. Mm. So they won't have been... Ah, and those uh, dustbin men carried the bins. Yes, those dustbin men actually earned their money instead of us doing all the work and carrying all the dustbins down to the bottom. If there's any dustbin men in, don't write in and complain. <laughs> Please. Uh, page uh, what, what, what we say? Wigan Council dustbin. Yes, any Wigan Council dustbin men don't write in and complain. Because at the moment, I'm doing half of your job. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and don't pretend that I'm not. Um, page four, I like that Deathstroke acknowledges his overconfidence and his presence the non-powered member of the Titans was the hardest to defeat. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of what we just said. Um, so Deathstroke's an assassin. Yes. Who not only dresses in bright orange... <laughs> not bright orange. That's a pretty bright orange. Uh, it's a kind of milky white orange. Well, I've kind of got a tie of serving if you want me to get in down. No, no, no. You orange. loved that tie, though, didn't you? I yeah. bought you that. You did. Um, and Adam broke the sword. Mm. Um, so, who not only dresses in bright orange, but runs out into the open in a busy city. Mm. He's a very clever assassin. Well, Adeline does point that out, doesn't she? Yeah. Adeline does say... So is he a very good assassin who is now on edge because yes. he's got away? He's sloppy. He's getting sloppy. That's what she points out. Yeah. That this Titans contract has gone on far too long. He's invested it's an awful lot of time out. in it. It's getting to him that he's not finished it. Yeah. And now he's rushing it. And there is also the feeling, based on an issue or two prior to this, that I mentioned in the synopsis, where he and Terra have a war games type thing. Right. He is now starting to doubt Terra as well. 
he's feeling so he's that panicking and yeah, rushing to, his yeah. feeling is that I don't think I can trust this girl mm. so he is starting to to lose it a bit um, as to his costume it was originally designed for him to be like Craven I mean it will explain in the next issue his backstory yeah but his hunting was not in urban warfare was it it was jungles. off in the jungles yeah so maybe the orange blends in I don't know Okay. Leopards and stuff are orange and black, aren't they? <laughs> Most of the trees are green, though. That's a good point. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> I do like that page six actually gives a time frame. It says it's been a year and a half since issue one. Yeah. In DC time, it's actually been four years in real life. Right. So I quite like that. So the entire first four years of this book took place in a year and a half. Page seven, Corey and Donna's apartment. Pure Perez rubble. Hmm. Is br- every piece, every rock in that is perfectly detailed. Um, p- pages eight and onwards. Yes. I find it quite funny that Dick, who turned away from Batman, is now relying on what he was taught in the ta- in his time as Robin. He-, he spends this issue doing detective work. He's not turned his back on Batman. You're getting pre and post crisis mixed up here. Okay. In the pre crisis universe, Batman and Robin, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson, had the disagreements. Right. certainly over him dropping out of college which Bruce was not a fan of but they didn't fall out and they never stopped talking Okay. because Dick actually goes to the Batcave to give Jason Todd his Robin costume and right. hand passes the torch and Bruce is there and Bruce approves of it and Bruce is very well you're your own man now you make your own decisions pre-crisis they didn't argue and they didn't fall out they had a minor disagreement um Bruce didn't like him dropping out of college. Dick didn't like that Bruce had a thing with Talia okay. and with Selena Kyle. So he didn't... Same time. Almost, <laughs> roughly, at the same time. Not not in a three-way kind of way, right? but around the same time. So they had disagreements, and so, they had minor right. father and son fights, like you are well aware of, <laughs> but they didn't fall out. Yeah. Post-crisis, suddenly they invented this huge rift between them, didn't they? where they hated each yeah, other. Yeah, where they, they yeah. didn't talk to each other for a length of time. That didn't happen pre-crisis. At least we've got the old pre-crisis stuff back now. Yeah, we, we at least now seem to have a Bruce Wayne and a Dick Grayson who are on good terms, don't we? Yeah. And a Bruce Wayne who respects Dick Grayson and a Dick Grayson who respects Bruce. Especially in that last issue of Night of Owls. Which is your favourite Which one was it, my yeah. favourite page, yeah. Where um, Dick Grayson was basically like, well, I can't hit you now because you've been reasonable. Yeah. And Bruce is like... So you are a person. You, you couldn't tear me down anyway, even in this condition. Yeah. Which I thought was lovely because you do get the feeling that it was playful rather than threatening. But he was, he, he was telling the truth anyway. Yeah. I don't think Dick Grace could tear down Bruce Wayne. Probably not. I really don't. Hey, look, I want the next page. Oh, yeah, that's very sad. Yeah. We're just going to have a little interruption here. Uh, Joe Kubert passed away the week that we're recording this. And on the next page of this issue is an advert for the Joe Kubert Art School. Which is very sad. I found that myth in the other day when I was reading an issue of Batman and then boom! Yeah. Rest in peace, Joe. Yeah. Carry it on! I'm still going though. It's the Kubert Art School. I want to go there. Alright, fair enough. We'll see what we can do. Uh, page 10. One of the things Wolfman and Perez did with the Teen Titans that was extremely effective was establish that Dick has become every bit the detective that Batman is, as you've just mentioned. Um, this was most obviously handled in the Who is Donna Troy issue, but here we see him logically analysing the crime scene and systematically deducing what happened and how. 
With Donna, Deathstroke has had two innocuous chemicals that, when mixed, as Donna develops her photos, creates a toxic ether. Of course, digital technology, that wouldn't work today. No. He'd have to come up with another way of taking out Donna Troy. Note as well, Dick's systematic analysis and working out how Deathstroke knew all the secrets. So he's piecing it all together here. Yeah. So I got at the end when Adeline tells him what's happened. He knows this. But he he's worked it all to. out, but he doesn't want to know it. He yeah. doesn't want to acknowledge it. But I think he's worked it out. Because he's certainly portrayed in this book as being very intelligent. Yeah. Um, page 13. All of the ways Deathstroke have taken out the Titans have so far been very plausible. Mm-hmm. Cyborgs, however... Realising him sitting down on that specific yeah. chair. Uh, he's sitting on a wooden chair. So as Michael's pointed out, it relies on him sitting on a wooden chair in the middle of his apartment. Mm-hmm. It's not the most comfy of looking chairs in the apartment. I don't know what's about you. Doing, what's it doing on the middle of the floor? What's anyway? it doing in the middle of the floor? Yeah, I'd be crashing out on that comfy chair behind the door. Yeah. That's what I'd be doing. Um, and it's a standard wooden table chair. There is no word on the table chair in the panel where we see Cyborg, yeah, for him to hide the ankle and wrist clamps. And metal's a conductor, but wood's a... We don't know that it's a wooden chair. It it doesn't look particularly metal. It doesn't. Could it be plastic? Don't know. Then why didn't it melt? These are all good questions. Uh, The point is that all the others have been credible, and this one isn't, is it? Because when Cyborg sits in the chair on page 12, there is no indication there that there's, anything, that on there's that. anything on that. But then on the next page, suddenly these huge clamps appear literally from nowhere. Yeah. And that stretches credibility somewhat. Mm. And again, we're going to get the so you can accept the guy's a cyborg. But you can't accept, you can't that accept the this. wooden chair grows arms. Yes. No, I can't. Yeah. I, I think it would have been much better for it to have been that big comfy chair. Because at least that There's big comfy chair it, looks yeah. like it's got something to hide, yeah. It's padded, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, they kind of let it down, though. There's no way for them to be hidden in such a way Cyborg wouldn't notice them. Even then, it, the whole thing relies on him sitting down... In that particular chair. Yeah. Or yeah. sitting down at all. Yeah. What if he hadn't? What if he'd gone to lay down on the sofa or something? What if he was out shopping? Yeah. All the others is either, in the case of um, Corey, he's planned it so that she'll open the present. Yeah. In the case of Donna, he's planned it so the minute she mixes these two chemicals together, she'll get hit by the Which gas. She will, in this gone. one, an awful lot of it seems to rely on luck and the fact that Cyborg and sat in that chair at what, this time. What happens if he puts something on it? it, it, does, it does the arms grow off when it's yeah, what, weight? Yeah, what's activated them? If he, put, if he puts like a, his shoes on them, will it Will that activate it? What activated it, yeah, because he sat in the chair for a good two panels before something happens. Yeah. Whereas if it is weight activated, surely it would have happened straight away. Yeah. But, yeah, so yeah, I, I kind of had to let that one slide And what if he got up and then it happened? Then he would have gone, wait a minute, something <laughs> odd here. Where did I get this chair from? Ikea? <laughs> Very odd. Uh, page 14. And other than that, the comic is structured really well in that the Titans are already captive and we see how it happened as Dick works it out. The spanner in Deathstroke's plan, the arrival of Adeline and Joseph, this wonderful structuring is let down slightly on page 20. Once again, were after seeing how the others were caught as Dick worked it out, or as it was explained to us by Adeline, here... 
there's no reason, no narrative reason for us to see how Changeling got caught, is there? No. Dick doesn't work this out. It just happens. Adelaine doesn't know because she doesn't. She wasn't there. Yeah. She can say Changeling's been kidnapped, just like the other three. You don't know how. But she doesn't know how. This is purely to show the audience how it happened, and as such, it doesn't work. Yeah. Because it's presented as a flashback, because the panels all have rounded corners on them. Mm-hmm. Personally, given the structure of the rest of the issue, I think it would have been better if we didn't find out how Changeling got caught. Yeah. Because Dick doesn't know, but it doesn't matter, does it? No. We've seen that he's caught Starfire, mm-hmm. and Wonder Girl, and Cyborg, and he missed out on catching Dick Grayson. It doesn't take a great leap of logic to say, well, he must have got Garfield as well. Yeah. So I think we didn't need this, because I do think this lets the side down more than the cyborg one, because there's no way Dick's worked out what happened here. And there's no reason for him to know. He doesn't need to know how Changeling was caught. Well, it's her, though, just picking up the letter and going, up. what's going on here? Yeah. So there's no reason for Dick to even need to know that. Yeah. It's All he needs to know is they've all been caught. He's piecing it together for the other three because he's clinging to the hope that they haven't all been caught. Yeah. One would imagine at this point he's smart enough to go, mm, if he's got those three, he's definitely got Garfield. Yeah. Because he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, is he? Probably not. What's, well, not Beast Boy, but Gar doing in the mansion? Wasn't Steve Dayton's rich. Oh, right. Steve, Rayton, Steve Dayton's a millionaire. What's he doing with him then? He was adopted by Steve Dayton. Ah, right. After... Because uh, he was an orphan with the Doom Patrol. Yes. And after the Doom Patrol was killed, I think, Steve Dayton or, uh, or, um, adopted him. Ah, right. So Garfield Logan's almost as rich as Bruce Wayne. Almost. Only almost. Only almost. No one's no as rich as Bruce Wayne. Tony Stark. No, Bruce has got more money than Tony Stark. How do you know? I just think that. Really? Yeah. Okay. I think Bruce is wealthier than Tony Stark. How? What, why? Uh, I just do. I think Tony Stark could be wealthier. What weapons manufacturing is? There's more money in that, is there? There's more, there's, yeah. See, I always got d- in Bruce contemporary Wayne. warfare. I'd say, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> well, Bendis would write an entire comic on Tony and Bruce the... talking about the wealth, wouldn't he? And that would actually be a decent issue to read. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a shame this because in every other respect, this issue is fantastic. It's really looking bleak for the Teen Titans at this point, with only Dick left uncaptured and Deathstroke's victorious. Notably, apart from in flashback, Terra does not appear in this second chapter of the story. We see what she's left behind. Yes. Um, it's really good. I really enjoyed it. It's very, very well done. The Meanwhile column is again excellent, centering on DC's 50th anniversary and talking about Jack Kirby's New New Gods series. Did that ever happen? A New Gods series by Jack Kirby in the mid-80s? Um... I have no idea. He, did, he, he, says a graphic he, novel. he says he's doing New Gods. We'll, we'll reprint New Gods 1 to 11 in his 648 page book. Issue 6 will feature an all new story written and drawn by Jack that will tie up the loose ends. Yeah, was that not the Hunger Dogs? Not Hunger the Hunger Dogs, Dogs graphic novel? Might be. Right. So that did that series never happen? That reprint series with the ending? Was it turned into the Hunger Dogs graphic novel? I'm assuming so, yeah. Right. Because okay. that's collected in the omnibuses. Is it? Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff gets a reprint, which has just been reprinted for the first time ever as a complete trade paper. That's why I may pick that up. And then there's the arrival of Blue Devil and sort of the Atom and other stuff. The Meanwhile column was always good value. Have they ever re-edited it so that it doesn't have half a page of blank space? 
Uh, I think if they're smart about it, they'll just make it one page instead of two. You're on about the old practice of having two half pages and adverts underneath, aren't you? Yeah. In, in that graphic novel, yeah, they've not done like it. Two panels at the top and a, yeah. yeah. In the Spider-Man reprints, they make it one full page. Right. I don't know if they've done that with the Green Hour and Green Lantern. Um, the letters page has a great shot of Admiral Kirk by Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagra, uh, plugging the arrival of DC's new Star Trek series and a shot of the Starship Enterprise. The movie but, Enterprise. Yeah, well, it's it's set after Star Trek Two, but before Star Trek Three. Right. So. Very good it was too. Tales of the Teen Titans issue 44 landed in North America on April 12th, 1984, but was covered dated July 84. Entitled The Judas Contract Book 3, There Shall Come a Titan. It was the same bunch of miscreants as the last time, except Todd Clean stepped in to do the letter, or Klein. The cover was a triptych montage kind of thing with three characters, a blue-clad adventurer sort with a high collar and a plunging neckline, who we don't know who it is yet and the titans behind him in one Deathstroke the Terminator with an army behind him in the jungle in the middle and a blonde bloke in purple, yellow, white and blue in the final with Terra, Wintergreen, Adelaine and the Hive behind him. Because it's by Perez it's visually interesting if not particularly dynamic because it is a lot of people standing around we've slagged that kind of cover off before haven't we? Yes. Much better if they'd done a Vietnam Deathstroke cover to this wouldn't they? Yeah. That would have been a much better selling point I think The plot. In Titan's Tower, everything is explained to Dick by Adeline. The boy is Joseph Wilson, Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke the Terminator's other son, who is mute. She gives Dick Slade's secret origin. Wibbly-wobbly music. At Camp Washington in the early 60s, Adeline Kane is tasked with taking a bunch of military men and training them for a new kind of war. One, in particular, Slade Wilson attracts her eye, and not just because of his decorated war status. After a series of intensive training where it becomes clear Wilson is the best of this group, Kane helps Slade become a lieutenant colonel, and shortly after they are married. Slade reunites with Wintergreen, a British major who is also his best friend, and when Slade is shipped off to Vietnam, Adeline is left at home after giving birth to their first child, Grant Wilson killed in issue two. Whilst overseas, Slade volunteers the top secret testing and is given adrenocorticotropic hormone that stimulates the adrenal glands. Slade is not expected to survive, but instead thrived. Oh, kind of. One day he would be a superhuman fighting machine, the next comatose. The army refused him active service, but just after the birth of his second son, Joseph, Slade receives word that Wintergreen has been captured by the Viet Cong. After rescuing Wintergreen against orders, Slade is discharged. For the next few years, he turns hunter. The bursts of superhuman activity cease, as do the comas. Slade becomes famous on the hunting market and very wealthy, mixing with many influential political figures. Joseph and Grant grew up very different. Grant was like his mother and father, a natural in combat, whilst Joseph was more arty, loving singing and music. One night, when Slade is away, the Wilson household is attacked, and despite putting up a decent defence, Adeline is overpowered and Joseph kidnapped. The kidnappers leave word they want somebody called Deathstroke, and when Slade returns home he tells Adeline that Deathstroke is a super-powered mercenary, a paid assassin that never misses. He is Deathstroke. The superhuman reflexes never left. Slade just said they did. Adeline forces Slade to take her with them whilst they track down Joseph, which isn't hard, as a ransom agreement is reached. At the meet, an international terrorist named the Jackal, and his men hold Joseph with a knife at his throat. 
The Jackal merely wants the name of the person who hired Slade to kill Colonel Akbar Kadar, and then they will release Joseph. Deathstroke refuses and action follows. Deathstroke takes out the Jackal and rescues Joseph, but the terrorist was starting to cut the boy's throat. Deathstroke was too slow. Adeline, in anger, attempts to kill Slade, but his reflexes assure she only took out his right eye. Dick acknowledges that this explains a lot, and Adeline says she knows where Deathstroke has taken the Titans. Dick adopts a new identity, Nightwing, and Joseph, one called Jericho. Jericho was also altered by Slade's mutated DNA can take over a body, and the duo follow Adeline's instructions and take off in the Titans jet. Page one. Yes. The splash clearly shows the pictures of the Titans that surround the meeting room. Far be it for me to criticise Perez, but I can't help thinking giving Terror a more prominent place here would have been a subliminal nod to what's going on. Mm. I think if Terror had been middle. Or maybe at the end as though she'd been added on later. You know, did she not replace Kid Flash? Right, they just took Kid Flash's picture down and put hers up. I was who, like, who did they hire to do that? I was, photos I was just going to say that exactly the same thing. Have these been drawn by an artist? Did they, get, did they hire um, a photographer? Oh. Maybe Donna did them. Yeah. Donna's a photographer. Or, or maybe they heard about these people doing comics about their adventures and they hired... <laughs> they hired George Perez yeah. to do the artwork. Yeah. Um, page two. Slade's origin is very similar to Captain America's. But the whole training scene with the attractive female officer that is better than many of the men under her, for now, is taken wholesale for the Captain America movie. Wait, a woman in the armour? Yeah. What's wrong with that? Well, I'm not being sexist here. Yes, you are. I'm not. I'm you so not, totally are. Really, I'm really not, because I'm pretty sure that women aren't allowed in the army. Yeah, well, they at are. At least they're not allowed on the front line anyway. That's so but totally even, are. They're not. You sure? Paul, I have a friend who is in the army who has told me that. Okay, so they are allowed in the army. He's, you're right, he has said they're not on the front line. All right, they're allowed right. in it as the, the doctors yeah. or intel, but that's about it. So... Here on page four, it's plain as day that she's with the soldiers training them. I find it hard to believe that after what he's told me, that they would choose a woman to train them, especially in the sixties. Yeah. Um, well, there's a woman training them all in the Captain America movie, but still, see, I, the women are allowed in the navy, dude. Army. Not in the navy. They are allowed in the navy, aren't they? Well, now, yeah. But not in the 60s. It, I'm sure it's a recent thing, because isn't there the big deal where they've only just allowed gay people to come on board? No, 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 no. Gay people have always been allowed, but it was don't ask, don't tell. Right, okay. Well, in the American military, anyway. Right. I don't suppose... See, my granddad has told us that story, hasn't he, of him going on shore leave. Yeah. And he knew a number of people in the Navy with him that were gay, and it was just... You just didn't talk about it. The, well, he didn't talk about it to me because there was one time where John Barrowman was doing a documentary about gay people mm. and they were on about the, the neighbour. Yeah. And there was like, a nan was talking to him about it and I was like, so, so, and the granddad was just like, oh, the things we did to them. What did you do to gay people? <laughs> I'm sure you don't want to know. <laughs> well, I'm was, not sure how to take that, granddad. It was, it was the, 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 the 40s and the 50s were a different time. <laughs> let's, let's move swiftly on. Um, the military action sequences, nevertheless, are excellently staged by Perez. Um, my main problem with this... Unlike Michael, I had no problem with women in the military. I had no problem with it. I was just, after what I was told, I was a bit... Um, but what was a British army colonel like Wintergreen doing in Nam? Yeah. Officially, 
The UK was not involved in now. So this officially. Is officially, so there's a plot contrivance. The UK has always had a positive and mutually beneficial relation with the US before the Vietnam conflict. Churchill and Roosevelt were friends. Mm-hmm. And the US provided data to the UK before they entered World War II. There was all that thing about the Manhattan Project, where Britain first refused American help, and then America wanted Britain help, and then America decided they didn't need us because they were getting along without us. And then eventually, we all got together with Canada and the Manhattan Project, and Fat Man and Little Boy, wasn't it? Happened, yeah. and all of that good bit. But for the most part, Roosevelt and Churchill had a good relationship. In the 60s, Harold Macmillan and President Kennedy were both big supporters of Anglo-American ties, with the constant exchange of information, especially in regards to defence and intelligence. Uh, and this continued in the 80s with Thatcher and Reagan, and Blur and Bush in the noughties. But in the late 60s, early 70s, the relationship was its most fractured yeah. With Prime Minister Harold Wilson and President Lyndon B. Johnson not seeing eye to eye on Vietnam. Wilson was under intense political pressure to not be involved in Vietnam. Right. I mean, he was involved in some kind of peace process thing in some capacity, but so officially we weren't involved in Vietnam. For the purpose of this story, I did some internet digging, yeah. and there was unofficially that there were UK soldiers in Nam in some kind, uh, either... They were in the New Zealand or Australian army that were involved in Vietnam, but they were UK-born, so technically UK people were involved in now. And then there was this wonderful conspiracy theory I read that I believe is hypocryphal. Go on, these sound funny. Apocryphal, sorry, not hypocryphal. I believe it's hypocryphal, but there was an internet thing I read that the SAS were involved in some capacity, helping train the Americans do something or involved in one mission. And there was something that I believe is really apocryphal that so Macmillan could say in the Houses of Parliament, there are no British soldiers in Vietnam. There's this rumour I found that British soldiers resigned the commission, joined the US military, did whatever mission they were supposed to be doing, resigned resigned from the US military and rejoined the UK military. I don't believe that for a second. Okay. However... Do they only have stolen name tags and put on a fake American accent? Yeah, possibly. But anyway, I believe that to be completely apocryphal. Officially, we had nothing to do with now. However, this is a comic book. Well, yeah. And it's not professing to be historically accurate. No. So for the purposes of a comic book... You're fine with that? I can buy that story. Okay. I'm totally fine with that story. The thing with the um, enhancement drug on this? Isn't the conspiracies around a drug used in Vietnam for that. Well, maybe that's where they got it from. Yeah. Jacob's Ladder is based on. Yeah, maybe that's where they got it from. Yeah. Because in this, he's not supposed to survive, which strikes me as a bit of a strange thing to do, give the drug to somebody who's not supposed to survive. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. Um... Page 14. How does Adeline know the name Deathstroke, the Terminator? The terrorists only use the name Deathstroke, don't they? Yeah, on page 15 they say the Terminator. Do they? They, they say, oh, it was Deathstroke, and then after that it's the Terminator will uh, negotiate with us now. Right, see, I thought she'd passed out by them because of the gas. Well, I'm assuming that... Oh, I barely heard him speak, that. yeah. So she pieced it together, Deathstroke, the Terminator. All right, fair enough. Um, page 17 and 18. All credit again to Perez for the scene where Destro decides to take out the terrorists rather than negotiate. Lots of cool panels and close-up. It's really fast action. Hmm. It's very, very well done. Uh, page 22. We've got Dick Grayson in his new ID of Nightwing, a nod to both Batman and Superman. Nightwing in Silver Age stories was Krypton equivalent of Batman, and this way Dick is paying homage to both the people who have been mentors to him. His initial costume isn't much cop, though, is it? No. Let's be honest. The high collar 
Whilst being a decent nod to his circus origins would surely interfere with his peripheral vision. And the open neckline just shows that he's not armoured. Yeah. It's like, where are you going to aim? I'm going to aim at that big plunging <laughs> neckline you've got there because you're quite obviously not wearing an armoured vest. Yeah. So, I didn't really get that. Jericho was created by George Perez. Completely. Who came up with the look, design and power set of the character. But was named by Wolfwood. So okay. Wolfman came up with the name. In current Nightwing comics, yeah. this is possibly going to be controversial. Uh, how current? New, the new Nightwing ones. The current All ones. of them in general? Yeah, so Nightwing created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Okay. Now, I'm not taking away from character creations. If that means Wolfman and Perez get some money for Nightwing, good. Is, is it not... What exactly did they create? Nightwing. The... Persona, in what way? Hero Nightwing. Dick Grayson already existed. Dick yes. Grayson was created by Bill Finger, did I believe. It, they didn't create Dick Grayson. They didn't create yeah. Dick Grayson. Yeah. The name Nightwing came from fifties Batman story, uh, Superman stories, where Nightwing and Flamebird and were the Krypton equivalent of Batman and Robin. So and I don't know who actually created the name Nightwing. They even say in this that yeah. the paint right, okay. So but it wasn't Marv Wolfman. So Maybe the credit in for them. For this? No, it says Nightwing, created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. And this is the first appearance of Dick Grayson as Nightwing. But what have they created? Dick Grayson already existed. The name Nightwing already existed. Put one, they put one and two together and That's created that. That's not creation! <laughs> right, okay. The name Nightwing was possibly come up with by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Nothing of what Wolfman and Perez did here exists anymore. That costume doesn't exist anymore, which Perez created. Yeah. And the very fact that he's called Nightwing is grafted on Dick Grayson. That's not creating a new character. Who who created the bomb? What the, bomb? The, any the the, the hydrogen bomb. Robert Oppenheimer is credited as being the father of the Manhattan Project. Did he create? But did he create either a the bomb that uh, the, he the worked with a number bomb, of people? Hydrogen. Did he work with either hydrogen or the bomb? No. But he's still credited as the creator of the... The, the, the man, bomb. the atom bomb. The atom, yeah. Yeah. You're going to write in about that, I know. We're remembering this from history at school. Cut us some slack. <laughs> it's bad Burley remembered the name Oppenheimer. <laughs> Did the CIA have a problem with that? If you're going to do that, then you should have Nightwing created by and whoever came up with the name Nightwing back in the 50s or 60s. And, and yet then, that guy who created the bomb is still... <laughs> So, they right. still put one and two together and came and got credited for the... I don't see how they can say Nightwing created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez when Marvel Comics don't say Fantastic Four created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Do they not? No. Why not? Just they don't. But they were. No, they did, yes, but they don't say that. That's the point I'm trying to make. I don't understand how Wolfman and Perez have wangled a created by credit for Nightwing. I still think it's just because of that panel, though. I don't think they actually created anything, though. They took two already existing concepts and married them together. That's just my take on it. If you've got a different opinion on that, email in, because I would like to hear. I don't want to get into the whole Stanley Jack Kirby... I'm not interested in that. Solely about, do you think Marv Wolfman and George Perez deserve the credit for creating Nightwing? That's what I want to know. Email in and let us know. Because okay. I would be interested in what the consensus is on this one. Because no. I know where everyone stands on Stanley and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, that's been debated to death. I am really interested in what, what people think of this. That? Uh, that Stanley takes credit for everything and nobody else gets anything. That's a debate. Uh, it's wrong. <laughs> Stan gets credit all the while. Okay. And it's not Stanley's place 
to pay Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko money. That's Marvel's place. Yes. It's not Stan's job. So they blame the wrong person. Essentially. Okay. Because it's easier to blame Stan because he's not dead. <laughs> and Steve Ditko doesn't seem to care. Ditko's still alive. And those three Sam Raimi movies, I don't remember the new one, but the three Raimi ones say created by Stanley and Steve Ditko. Right. And I'm sure Jack Kirby's credited in the Avengers movies mm. and in the Fantastic Four movies. But okay. I could be wrong about that. So, but I'm not interested in that. No. I want to know. We only just got over our Alan Moore debate. Yeah, now we're getting into, yeah, now we're getting into all that. <laughs> I want to know if you think Wolfman and Perez deserve the created by um, credit in current Nightwing books. Um, carrying on, I thought this was an excellent issue. It was gripping in both story and art. Made all the more fantastic by being the culmination of four years worth of plot. Only one member of the Titans appears in this issue, and even he's only in costume for four pages of a special 25-page issue, three pages longer than usual, yet the situation is dire. Um, You could ask why Adeline felt the need to spend 20 pages telling Slade's backstory when the Titans are in such trouble, a point that Dick does address, to be fair. And it could also be asked why Slade hasn't come straight after Dick after he escaped last issue because surely Slade's smart enough to figure out that Dick would investigate what's happened to his friends and end up at Titan's Tower at some point mm-hmm. but these are all minor points in a story that's so satisfying in its execution it's churlish to find fault Slade's origin as we've mentioned bears a superficial similarity to Captain America and he's set up to Batman but this actually just makes him more powerful as a character and more effective as a villain such a shame DC tried to make him an anti-hero in the 90s like uh, DC, like uh, sorry, Marvel did with Venom. Yeah, he got his own book and everything. He's much more effective as a bit as a villain. He have his own miniseries. Uh, no, he went straight to a regular series. You you used to have some of them, didn't you? Yeah, because you gave him them to read. Yeah, but he, he wasn't in a miniseries. He went straight to his own book. Oh, okay. Mike Zek did the covers. So he was an anti-hero then. Yes. Isn't that why you like the new fifty-two so much? Because he's gone he's back, back to being a bad guy, right? Which is what he should be. Uh, there's no letters this month due to the extended story, but there are ads for the superpowers action figures. There you go. I used to have Superman. I don't see why they, they had to do a illustrated Lex Luthor and not use the toy Lex Luthor. Yeah, that's a bit silly, that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I used to have that Superman action figure. I don't know where it is now. Um, there's also um, an ad for the beginning of the anatomy lesson in Swamp Thing, an ad for the Superpowers comic book series by Jack Kirby. The Flash takes on the Pied Piper from Flash 335, and the Superman, the born-again Krypton Man from Superman 397. When is a Krypton Man? Uh, a man from Krypton. It was a man Superman. made of Kryptonite, wasn't it? Oh, right, okay. In the pre-crisis age, I think. I didn't read that. Finally, tonight... And even with no emails, this is a long one. Yeah. We really are becoming... four issues as well. We are becoming motor mouths, aren't we? Yeah. I blame you. I blame me as well. Uh, Finally, the Judas Contract Book 4 finale appeared in Tales of the Teen Titans Annual Number 3, which dropped on April 26, 1984. For a whole $1.25. For a whole $1.25 or UK 45 pence. All right, as long as it was 45p for us. Yeah. Uh, Interestingly, the cover has no barcode. Okay. Well, I found that interesting. Yeah, but doesn't have other ones. Yeah, they do. That would be the barcode in newsstand comics. What, the new DC, there's no stuff in that? Yeah. That's alright. We didn't have barcodes in the UK at that point. Right. And they would have had American dollars on them, so they blanked them out. Oh, 
No, you can't. They probably tip Baxter. Uh, <laughs> the Titans look on as Terrence real scientific. <laughs> all these comic books shipped over in ballast, and then at the other end, so they used to tip X out all the barcodes. Sweatshops, <laughs> little Asian kids. Yes, sweatshop somewhere. Tip Xing out barcodes. <laughs> The Titans look on as Terra stands between them and Deathstroke. Agents of the Hive stand behind. It's by Perez. Changeling is pleading with her. It gives nothing away. There is no cover copy or word balloon, so the reader is led to believe this can still go either way. The plot in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, the Hive gather. The Titans, sans dick, are held in a machine called the Enervator that nullifies their powers. Deathstroke explains that he's only here due to the contract he inherited from his son, the Ravager, who the Titans fought in issue two. He also reveals his partner in crime, Tara Markov. Outside, Nightwing and Jericho approach the Hive HQ, right where Adeline said it would be. Nightwing takes out the guards, and thanks to Joseph's ability to take over unconscious bodies, he infiltrates the Hive HQ disguised as Hive agents. The Hive refused to pay Deathstroke, and he's not captured all of the Titans. Deathstroke contacts Wintergreen, who says there has been no contact from Grayson, but he's still working on it. Wintergreen seems unsure, because it turns out that Adeline has him at gunpoint. Nightwing and Jericho follow other Hive goons to the control room where the Titans are being held. Jericho feels that the man whose body is in control of is coming too, forcing Nightwing and Jericho to act. Jericho leaps from life to life, knocking out goons and forcing them to drop their weapons, whilst Nightwing punches people out. Outnumbered, the two Titans run straight into terror. It's a confrontation that does not go well for them. Captured and attached to the Enervator, Nightwing asks Terra why. Why not? She replies. Deathstroke, however, wants his son back, and Jericho makes eye contact with his father. Taking over his body, Jericho blasts the Titans free. Fighty McFightenstein. The Titans take out the Hive whilst Terra tackles Deathstroke as she doesn't know about Jericho's power. Believing that Deathstroke has betrayed her, Terra snaps. She takes down the Raven while Cyborg tries to stop Deathstroke. Deathstroke snaps off Cyborg's arms as Terra goes over the edge. She causes earthquakes as the Titans flee. Completely insane, Terra is in the eye of the storm as she brings the Hive's HQ down around her ears. The Titans manage to crawl from the wreckage. Deathstroke is with them and taken prisoner. Gar finds Tara's body and weeps openly. At Tara's funeral, the Titans don't tell her brother of her betrayal, allowing him to believe that she died a hero. There's much more of a DiCarlo feel to this book, and Dan DiCarlo would go on to be uh, the primary inker for Perez for the next year or so. Um, it's a double-page spread with a nice homage to Kirby in the centre. However, it seems incredibly fortunate that they have an horizontal chamber for Raven, when it seems apparent from the dialogue that the innovator not working on her was unexpected. Mm. So that was quite lucky, wasn't it? It was. Uh, there also doesn't seem to be space for Dick Grayson. That also seems like it was built around the titans we had yes uh, but actually that will be explained later on I made that note before I finished the issue uh, the explanation of how the innovator works takes the powers and feeds making it stronger and will continue to do so until they're dead doesn't take Dick into consideration either Dick has no powers to siphon Mm-hmm. well what powers would they siphon from Cyborg he doesn't have any he's a cyborg not a superpower. that's person. a very good point as well Cyborg in and of himself has no powers does he it's all in his bionic limbs yeah very good point. 
didn't think that through, did they? No. Uh, page four, again, Deathstroke points out that the Titans were partially responsible for the death of his son, which doesn't really tally up with what we saw in issue two, mm. where it was quite clearly the Hive were totally responsible for the death of his son. Okay. Uh, page five is the big reveal where we learn of terror where the titans learn sorry of terror's betrayal um there's no over the top exclamation no full page splash no melodramatic dialogue most of the titans are stunned into silence for vic this all makes sense because he never really trusted her from the beginning uh but changeling maintains that tara must be under some typical bad guy mind wash or hypnosis or some such drivel tara's exclamation that she isn't is doubly chilling because she has no reason at all to hate the titans deathstroke's motivation is spurious but it is at least a motivation tara just hates because she can the titans were just unlucky that she met slade wilson it's funny that the the panel after this reveals she's the bad guy, she then starts smoking. Because bad guys smoke, dude. Yeah. Do you not know that from watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Um, apparently not. Everybody who's a bad guy in Buffy smokes. Okay. Nobody who's a good guy smokes. Did you never spot that? Well, as soon as Angel, yeah, as soon as Angel right. became Angelus, he started smoking. Right. Okay. When he became Angel, he didn't. Spike smoked. Yes. Bad guy. Did he then stop when he became good? I don't recall if he stopped when he became good. Well. I'll have to watch them all again just to he check sta- on that. He started smoking at the end, didn't he? Yes, he did. But he got better. Apparently. Uh, page seven. It's a really nice touch that Kid Flash is no longer a part of the team, so Deathstroke doesn't go after him. Yeah. Which I thought was quite He's clever. He's targeting current team members. Yeah. Kid Flash has left. If you want him, you've got to pay me more money. So, so what happens when Dick just goes out? I'm not a team title anymore. Oh, well, you can leave then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because they know he's not going to, don't they? Let's be honest. Um, the dialogue here, however, contradicts page three. Page three of this issue, the Hive released Deathstroke from his contract as he's completed the mission. Yeah. On page seven, they refuse to pay because he's not completed the mission. Yeah. <laughs> Did you not spot that? I've altered the deal. Pray I do not alter it further. <laughs> <laughs> um, page eight was very sloppy of Slade to be honest with you he suspects something's wrong with Wintergreen and just dismisses it it's like oh maybe it's my nerves but Wintergreen seemed edgy oh well it's probably nothing <laughs> and you're like really dude yeah. you're the best there is at what you do and you're like eh, it's probably nothing he's, I wouldn't worry about it he's been sloppy for the uh, he has been sloppy for the entire storyline so I suppose it does tie in um, I do think that should have made him a bit suspicious though mm. page 9 Wintergreen's account for being in Vietnam seems a bit loose but as we mentioned in our brief talk about it in the last issue, you can make it fit, at least as far as comic book logic goes. We get Wintergreen's secret origin, which basically boils down to Wintergreen saves Slade's life in the sewers. Slade returned the favour in now. Okay. Fair enough. Um, page 13, nice little black humour in panel one, where Dick tells Joseph to shush. <laughs> and then kind of go, oh, I forgot you were mute. Yeah. Sorry about that, dude. <laughs> Very insensitive of me. <laughs> Um, I'm also not clear on how Jericho's powers work. No. He has to make eye contact to take over somebody, which is fine. Yeah. Where does his body go? Does he not have that thing where his body... His body seems to go intangible and goes inside the body of the person he takes over. Yeah. And then once he's expelled from that body, his real body comes back to being... Tangible. He's got the powers of Dead Man. Just he has a yeah, pretty, but he's pretty much Dead Man then, isn't he? But yeah, Dead Man's a ghost, and yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe his body turns into a ghost, and then 
I wasn't entirely clear on how that worked. Why does the whole eye contact thing... What's with that? Well, I, uh, the eye contact thing made sense to me. Is the eye contact thing... The eyes like are the windows to the soul. A video game's hold L1 and then press yeah. square to jump into his body. I see, I didn't mind that. I was more concerned with where the hell does his body go? Yeah. That's what bugged me more than the eye contact. But. Um, the more I read about Hive, the more I think there's some sort of cult. Yeah, so yeah, it, yeah, they are. It, and... It, it might not help at the same time of doing notes I'm reading about cults, but groups like these, like AIM and Hydra and Hammer, they all seem like cults. Yeah. Only they don't kill themselves at the end. They just allow themselves to be beaten up by a group of heroes. <laughs> yeah, there's a definite cult-like mentality. Where, where, do you, where do you hire for... For, like, <laughs> for the Hive? For, yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you post adverts in the Bloody Guardian? <laughs> Wanted Hive members yeah. must hate superheroes. Yeah. Full dental plan offered. <laughs> because you will get your teeth knocked out. Yeah, but high, high mortality rate. So they, they go around London and Manchester bringing up homeless people, offer them shelter and food, and they don't mind taking a beating for a greater cause. But then you get a full medical coverage. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Dental plan. Yes. You may get a few knocked out, but we'll refer them. Yeah, that's very good of them. Uh, 1718 is a fantastic fight scene. Perez's choreography of Nightwing's moves are exceptional, but Jericho moving from body to body, causing all manner of confusions, exquisite. See, it was only in rereading this, I remembered that he could only take people over if they were unconscious. Yeah. But he can't, can he? He can take over anybody mm. if he chooses to. Um, I did love on page 20 that Terror took out Nightwing and Jericho in one panel when Deathstroke couldn't bring Dick Grayson down. Yeah. Which I thought was quite good. Uh, page 22. So what we spotted earlier wasn't a mistake. The Enervator has plugins. Okay. Because they bring Dick Grayson out strapped to his bit of the Enervator. Yeah. So they only plug it in when they capture the right it's person. Like a Lego toy. Yeah. The the complaints that we had about having a lie down box for Raven being very convenient and the fact that Dick Grayson and Cyborg have no powers is still valid. I think hmm. that's not addressed. Why anyway. do they all have different bits then? Well, presumably each bit of the Enervator nullifies that individual person's powers. Right. But you are correct. Dick Grayson doesn't have any. So but, okay. So in that case, um, Starfire and Cyborg have the same powers, though. Apparently so. Um, th- and they're actually connected together, aren't what they? Pa- uh, what powers does Donna try of? Uh, she's an Amazon, like Wonder Woman. Did they? I thought they didn't have powers. I thought they were just they're just naturally super strong and super fast and can fly. Yeah. Well, see, I don't, would that be considered a superpowers then? If that's natural for her? No, it would just be as natural as us being out how we are. But super strong. Yeah. So if we were all super strong, that would be considered normal. Yeah. Fair play. Alright. Yeah, I can go with that. I presume, therefore, that when they bring out Jericho, he's in Kid Flash's plug-in. Yeah. But then that doesn't work with what we've just surmised about the Enervator, does it? No. Because if that was designed for Kid Flash, it wouldn't work on Jericho. And in fact, doesn't. Hmm. Because Jericho takes over Deathstroke's body. Yeah. So maybe that was an intentional thing. I don't know. Uh, Page 23... It's very awesome that Deathstroke does not know about Jericho's powers. Mm. He's obviously never been told that Jericho has these powers. Which means that they only came along after he left his wife. So yeah. he's very definitely the Marvel definition of mutant. His powers only kick in at adolescence. Right. Well, that's my take on it, anyway. Um, it's also stated that Deathstroke doesn't fight back when Jericho takes over his body. Which I thought was a nice little subtle touch. Mm. Because he wants his son to get out of there alive. So by just letting him do what he needs to do, he can get Jericho out of there safely. So it's another 
Thomas Wayne thing. Yeah, doubly ironic then that at some point in Titans Hunt later on in the 90s, Deathstroke will stab Jericho through the back with a knife. Right. Like in that Mark Waid panel, four panels that never work. Isn't he in Teen Titans games though? Oh, that doesn't matter. Dead characters are in games all the time, aren't they? No, I mean the graphic novel. Your graphic games follows directly on from the Perez Wolfman stuff, I think. So I think it doesn't take like any of that into account. Right, okay. I think. I don't know. Fair enough. I read games having only read this era of Teen Titans and wasn't confused. I read other than by Danny Chase, who I didn't really know much about. Well, I read games without reading any of the Teen Titans and got quite bored quite fast. See, I loved it. I right. thought it was really good. But I grew up with this. Yeah. So. Uh, I do like that this is what undermines his plan as well. The Titans are defeated here. They've been beaten. Yeah. And it's only the presence of Jericho as a wild card that lets them escape. Granted, once they do escape, they make the best of their opportunity. Yes. But they were beaten here. They were taken down. Um, page 24, we've, we've discussed Jericho's powers, but apparently his body just disappears when he, he takes over another person's body. Astral plane. Possibly. Yeah, there may be some astral planeage going on. Page 25, Perez's splash of the Titans busting loose. Uh, I get what you were saying earlier on about Starfire's face, but only Perez could make that almost angelic face look so angry. Yeah. He does a really good job, though. Mm. I think that's an exceptionally good panel. I wish he'd inked that himself like he did with the splash page of Starfire posing. Maybe he'd just rather draw pretty women. Probably. I don't know. Well, uh, finally, 25 pages in the get what we're waiting for. (laughs) Four issues! There there was quite a bit of tales before we get to the (laughs) T-Titans. Very good. Very funny. Um, again, for Perez, the fight scenes on pages 28 through 36 are beautifully choreographed. An argument can be made that the Hive agents are dispatched with a little, a little easily and presumably killed by Terra. But each of the Titans trying to take on Terra and being defeated handily is a good representation of just how powerful she is. The thing that actually causes Terra to snap feeling that she's been betrayed by Deathstroke is very well handled. Far better than in my cack-handed synopsis. Deathstroke cutting off Cyborg's hands was a wonderful little touch that did make me go, Ey! made me wince a bit. Although Cyborg says, my arm, singular, when he's yeah. just had both of his hands cut off, which I thought was a bit strange. His other hand doesn't matter, does he not? Uh, but Terra's final death is handled quite eloquently by Wolfman. Exactly how the Titans survive terror bringing the Hive HQ down around their ears isn't quite explained. Neither is how they caught Deathstroke so quickly, but this is missing the point. The death of Tara Markov is a stunning payoff to months of setup, whereby the reader knows all along that Tara was a bad egg and the hope was she'd be rehabilitated. That Wolfman and Perez stuck with the plans and told the story they set out to tell as a testament to how much DC trusted them at this time. And, of course, the sales figures probably didn't hurt. For me, this was the beginning of the end. Whilst Perez and Wolfman would stick around for a little while longer, culminating in issue 50's The Wedding of Donna Troy, the advent of the new comic book store-only Titans book, which Perez only drew the first couple of issues of, plus the feeling that the books just didn't have the same feel anymore, led me to drop the book sometime in the mid to late 80s. Unlike other comics... I've never gone back. The Titans, to me, felt very much like the Lee Kirby FF to certain people. After Perez left, it just wasn't the same. The issues that I did read felt like Wolfman was spinning his wheels and rehashing old storylines, and the book never gained the luster of these first 50 or so issues. Whilst Crisis in Infinite Earths is an epic achievement, for me, personally, this run on Titans is Wolfman and Perez's magnum opus. 
did you think, Michael? Uh, I enjoyed it, but I still think the cartoon was better. What, what did the cartoon do differently? I just thought it was a. I just thought that having a be good and then manipulated was a better sto- uh, story than us knowing all along, but them not. See, I like that she was evil from the beginning, and she had no reason to be. She just was. Some people are just scum. Okay. And it's the whole nature versus nurture thing. Some people can have the best upbringing in the world, and they turn out to be scum. And some people can have the worst upbringing in the world, and they turn out to be saints. Yeah. And I think it was just that that way with Tara. She was scum from the get-go. Okay. And the Titans were just unlucky. Well, I, I like the whole Empire Strikes Backness of the uh, the cartoon. Of the cartoon. Yeah. Because right. I've never seen the cartoon. I think I saw a couple of episodes. I liked it. Yeah. I saw of it. At some point, you had all the action figures, didn't you? All no, the little I, teen I don't know. When we went to Florida, he got them. All Has he still got them? Somewhere. Dig them out and put them on your shelf because <laughs> they were quite cute. Yeah. Um, the Titans have a special place in my heart. Prior to the Titans, the only DC books I read regularly was Batman and Detective Comics. The only characters I knew were Bat or Superman related. Thanks to the Titans, I discovered the wider DC universe and went from this and Batman's picking up a number of DC books, especially in the wake of the crisis. They were a wonderful team of people that felt real, an impressive achievement for lines on paper. And Perez made each and every one of them look wonderful, even totally selling Robin's outfit, a costume a number of equally good artists had never managed to pull off. Wolfen managed to pull off Dick Grayson aging and handing over the Robin ID to Jason Todd with aplomb, and the book had a very sexy and adult appeal that I only really appreciated as I got a little older, but it never alienated younger readers, case in point me, because I was reading this from being 12 years old. There have been other iterations of the Titans, other creative teams have come along and put their imprint on the characters, but for me the Titans will be forever associated with Wolfman and Perez, and will forever be Robin, Starfire, Cyborg, Changeling, Wonder Girl, Raven, and Kid Flash. And that about wraps it up for this week. Yep. Next week... Hey Kids Comics Spotlight on. Six weeks, three each, three from me, three for Michael, where we choose three creators and pick three books from those three creators. Three books? Three books. Oh, great. Why? Have you only picked one? No, four each. I've gone for three, because that's a nice round figure. Yes. So, three and three, it kind of works together. So you can eliminate. Better that you can eliminate in one than having to find another one. Yeah. Um, I would love people to Facebook us with what they think our three creators are going to be because yeah. I think that would be quite interesting Okay. In my, so I'm not telling you what we're doing next week just yet it's me up the bat first isn't it Yeah. I'm first then me then Michael then and then you. we'll alternate for, for three weeks and then the season finale we may as well tell them the season finale oh. Green Arrow the Longbow Hunters alright oh, you looking forward to that I don't know I it's really know good doing. okay you do know I've written it down. Do you think I'll look at them? I've got lists of where we're going to be and what we're doing and what date they're going to go up so I can work out stuff like, well, should we do a Halloween episode? And you don't even look. Sometimes. <sighs> if I'm having my breakfast in the morning and I see it. But... Why do I even bother? Say goodnight, Grayson. Goodnight, Grayson. so hard to beat. Every time she walks down the street. Another girl in the neighborhood. Wish she was mad, she looks so good I wanna hold her, wanna hold her tight Yeah, teenage kicks right through the night I'm gonna call her on the telephone Have her over
I've ever 